Welcome to the Mega Blast Podcast. I'm your host, Jason McDonald. My goal is to get to the truth through conversation. The Mega Blast Podcast is produced by Arts and Opinion, an online journal housed at the Archives of Canada. Visit us at artsandopinion.com. I hope you enjoy today's guest. So welcome, everybody. Uh, this is now my fourth podcast and fourth guest. I'm here with Alexander Baldizar. Welcome, Alexander. Thanks for coming on my podcast. Thanks for having me. Good. Okay. Um, I thought we could start just by uh, some introductions about you. I'm going to ask you a couple questions about that. But um, reading your Wikipedia page is really quite an adventure. There's just so many things in there. I actually think um, if this goes well, maybe I could do a whole podcast just about your life because it's so just wild and diverse. I mean, there's one of the things that struck me was a, a host. You were a host in a Japanese hostess bar that was mentioned in there, <laughs> you know, and there was uh, something about being a speechwriter for the New York City Civilian Police Complaint Board or something with these things that, you know, I, I don't think I could, I don't know how you could have made them up. I know they're not made up, but they're so varied that they have to be. Uh, so what I, I just, but I have to ask you about one, which is this. Yeah, yeah I, you went to McGill. I went to Concordia and it says that you won the McGill Beer Mile test. Can you talk a little bit about that? That, that was a long time ago. Um, yeah, I was, I was on the rugby team at McGill and we, we drank a lot of beer. Uh, so I was, I, at the time I was both fit for running and for drinking. Um, right. so the, beer mile, the beer mile was, you run a mile, you run a quarter mile, chug a beer, run another quarter mile, chug a beer. So you end up chugging four beers um, and Get running mile. one mile. And at the time I won, um, I'm not a fast runner normally, but uh, because I could open my throat and just down the beer instantly. Um, <laughs> and I could run with a belly full of four beers. It may have actually started with a beer. So I think it was five beers total. So you start with uh, a beer and then every quarter mile. Um, and for a long time, if you Googled my name, the beer mile result <laughs> came up. Uh, well, that's, my- that's pretty cool to be famous for something <laughs> like that. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's sort of it's it sort of piqued my interest, like beer mile. I sort of thinking you running a mile, and you know, um, it definitely sounds hard to do. It's hard to run a mile, even you know, even if you're young and healthy. It's it's a long distance to run, and then if you're, happy- I think I think just to be uh, a lot of people who are faster than me got disqualified because they vomited at some point, and the minute you vomit, you're out. So uh, okay. my right. my my inability to vomit helped me out. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's how you want to start the podcast talking on <laughs> yeah, your, your, your inability to vomit. I just, I just couldn't help but ask. That's fine. It's no problem. Um, but I do want to ask you, you, um, you're, you're, a, you're a lawyer, obviously, and you're also a writer. Um, if you want, you can talk about your book. That'd be great because it looks really interesting. But do you consider yourself more of a lawyer, more of a writer, or does it matter? Just No, no, I'm, 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 I always say I'm a recovering attorney, not an attorney. Um, I, I, I stopped being a lawyer. I'm, technically, I'm still a member of the California Bar. Um, I'm inactive, but uh, I practice in California. And I worked in uh, both San Francisco and Prague uh, doing international trade law. But that didn't last very long. I, it was changing the way my brain worked. And uh, 
I was young and arrogant and I thought I could just, you know, leave, leave that whole world and just write novels and make a living on novels. Um, that turned out to be not realistic, at least not initially. Um, but ever since 2000, I've been working full-time as a writer. Uh, I, worked, I worked as a journalist for a while. I've written a bunch of pieces for the Globe and Mail. Um, most through the serendipity, like I, I was in Nepal when the king was killed and during the Maoist rebellion. So I just spent six months there. That's how I got my first story with the Globe and Mail. Um, then I was in Bali when the Bali bomb went off. So I got another story. Um, so I, 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 it, it, I was never on staff. Your voice is, I'm not hearing your voice. Yeah. Did you mute yourself? Yeah. Okay. Something funny going on here. Hello? Yeah, it says, it says uh, recording. Back. Hello? Yeah. yeah, good. Sorry about that. Yeah. You, you, you. Oh, it says, it says the internet, your internet connection is unstable. Oh, maybe not mine. Sure you or me. Yeah, it could be mine. Apologies for that. Hopefully I can edit this out. So you were saying you you were traveling around the world. You were in Nepal when the mouth. I was traveling around the world, and everywhere I went, bombs went off. Just by, <laughs> by bad luck or good luck, I don't know. For a journalist, maybe partially good luck. Um, so I ended up placing a lot of stories, and that you know you start building up a uh, repertoire, a portfolio. Um, but then when I moved to Indonesia, um, that shifted. I ended up stumbling into a job as a gallery director. I ran one of the top galleries in Indonesia. And through that, I ended up getting into art criticism. I started, I became one of the founding editors for Sea uh, Arts Magazine, which was uh, the first English language uh, Pan-Asian art magazine. Oh. Um, so I, I, I became an art critic, though I had no background in, in art. Like I never took an art history course. Um, but my, my first wife was an artist. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept of, of transactional memory. Where Heard of your, it. Your, your wife maybe, knows where your keys are, so it's not worth it's not worth your, using your own memory storage to know where the keys are if your wife knows where the keys are. So you know, within couples, you create an allocation of who remembers what. So with my first wife, because she had a really deep knowledge of art history and art, um, I, I, you know, I, I started off my pieces by showing her the, the art, and she'd say, "Go look at these ten artists." I go research them, and I write a piece. And then over the years of doing that, I actually ended up getting to know, like I, I got my art history education in, in right. the process of doing all that. Um, then when we divorced, my transactional memory disappeared and I stopped being an art critic. Right. Um, right. <laughs> that, that's interesting. That, that seems like a uh, really good way to learn about something. And it's really true that when, you know, when you have two people the, the, you know, in a couple, a natural couple relationship, there is a kind of division of labor that naturally breaks down because if yeah. you're with a person, they, we all have different backgrounds. Most people do anyway, some different specializations. That's interesting. Yeah, I, 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 for a long time, I, I stopped about you know 10 years ago, but up until about 10 years ago, I sought out relationships based on learning new things. Um, I, I like people who are very, I like dating people who are very different, who have very different experiences and paths and ways of processing information. Because um, I found I ended up, you know, at, at, in law school, I dated a woman, a professor, doctor, doctor, the, the smartest person I've ever known. Um, but she, her, her first doctor, she was a professor of philosophy from Finland. And, you know, I couldn't have an argument about socks without her bringing in Heidegger. And so I had to read Heidegger, I had to read Gadamer, I had to read Buber. 
So in, in just to argue about the socks, I ended up getting a philosophy education. Um, and I've, I've, I've loved that. So this is your, your PhD track, it sounds like, is the women you marry are super smart and they end up giving you this education. So you got sort of like a wife PhD in art history and a wife PhD in <laughs> philosophy, it sounds like, right? So, I'm not sure if the artist I would classify as a PhD in art history, she was more, um, she was extremely creative and, and, and nuts, but uh, the, that aesthetic view of looking at the world more than just lear learning the actual facts you know of say a phd I, I i like getting deeper into a whole different way of processing information and so uh the first girlfriend i had in law school who actually i ended up basing a character in my, my novel on that everybody thinks is completely insane but those sections are almost almost by a lot of biographical um but she, she's a really, I mean, she's a great person. We're still in touch, uh, completely tolerated me caricaturing her. Um, but she, she was just such a full, everything was full of philosophy to her. She, she, she couldn't process information without it being about the essence of being and, and meaning of life, you know, that kind of stuff. Whereas my first wife, um, she was extremely aesthetic. You know, she didn't process rationally. She processed everything, uh, aesthetically and so that was really interesting um and then my second wife who with whom you know emotionally was by far the closest i i, I kind of got out of that paradigm of using women just for learning <laughs> and, and 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 yeah she was just a super it, strong it, sound, it sounds unsustainable a little bit because it is is it one of those things where it might run its course and then it sort of feels like once you know everything like that then what are you doing yeah. now? something like that maybe when when i when i lived in japan i had a girlfriend who had a really interesting job her, her job she went she went she was really good at reading uh facial expressions and she would go into board meetings and just sit there quietly in the corner and then she with the ceo she didn't do anything she just watched and then afterwards she would you know she took notes and she would tell the ceo who was lying when she was like a human lie detector Amazing. and uh weird person that was a girlfriend but really again really interesting woman and once she told me uh, it kind of stuck when she said you're like a sponge and once you learn once you learn from me everything you want to learn you're going to leave and i was like no no that's ridiculous and uh, she might have been onto something yeah she, but, she but, yeah i don't want to i don't want to make myself out to be a complete asshole i, I broke that pattern about right. 10 years ago right. yeah. um it just it's it's interesting that that ability to read faces i mean that you know there's, there's that famous psychologist who I'm, I'm blanking on his name paul something who came up with that whole uh, theory of there's eight human emotions you can read on human faces and there was a show with tim roth called lie to me based on him where he went to prisons and stuff and he he identified certain things that people will do when they're when they're um, not when they're lying necessarily when they're when they're holding information back if they're smiling in a fake way if yeah. you smile like this there are little muscles in my eyes that don't turn up and so yeah. it sounds like your ex girlfriend must have had a very uh, natural knack at that particular usually faces right. From, from what I've read, it's actually very, very hard to detect lies. We're, we're very good at lying as a species. Um, but there are certain cues, like you said, you know, if the eyes aren't engaged in a smile, it's probably fake. Uh, the dilation of the pupils, um, 
the, the direction in which you're looking, you know, the, the, the different quadrant of the brain that's it's making stuff up and when if it's not. Um, but I, I think it's very, very hard to quantify. I think with Tamaki, the Japanese girl, she had a weird thing where she didn't speak for the first five years of her life. So she oh. just, she had a weird psychological block. Something ha happened that she, she just didn't speak. And so really from a very early age, all she was doing was watching people's faces. And then, you know, by the time she was an adult, she could speak, obviously, but she maintained that, that skill that she learned at a very, very young age. And I think that's part of the reason she had a you know, unique talent. Um, Boy, that's really interesting as a, uh, okay. Um, I, I'd like to come back to that in the future. <laughs> it's really interesting. Imagine that we went off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's just fine. Um, one thing I thought we could do is just because we want to talk about human freedom and and what that you know what that means and examples and of, of the abrogation of that and where it exists in the most least abrogated forms and so on. Just maybe you could define how you see what you believe freedom. If you had to explain to an alien what that con or to someone who maybe to someone who doesn't speak English or something you're teaching it, how would you describe it? Oh, um, that's a, that's a tough question philosophically because it's so broad. I'm a big believer in context um, and defining something like freedom outside of a context becomes tricky. Might be impossible. Uh, I, 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 but I mean, I'm, I'm happy to go there. But before I do, I want to give a little caveat that I, I prefer to process information through a Bayesian approach. So I don't, I don't believe anything. I, I, I try not to have truths that are zero or one. I try to have everything on a probabilistic level, and new evidence, new circumstances, new context will shift those probabilities with mm -hmm. each new data point that comes in. Um, that said their basic you know guardrails of what how you would define freedom i think it's basically uh not telling other people how to live um allowing uh allowing the diversity of opinion allowing um you know this confirmation i mean that, that all ends up becoming manifestations of freedom within certain contexts but, but freedom itself is is you know, it, it's defined in practical terms. So I think it'd be easier if you ask me. Sure. Yeah. Well, actually, context. yeah. I'm. 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 Actually, I can. That's. I want to do that. In fact, I, I can give you. I can give you a snarky answer that if somebody tells me what to do, I tell them to fuck off. Yeah, that's okay. my definition of freedom. <laughs> so so that, that sounds like a mixture of uh, someone who believes in freedom and is also slightly contrarian too, because I'm the same way. I'm very, yeah. pushes me this way. I'm naturally going to push the other way. I have a natural tendency to do that. And I have to- Well, I, Rob, there's a quote. Go sorry, ahead. There's a quote from Robert Musso that, that man's antisocial instinct is his most social instinct. Oh. So I think it's very- yeah, I, I'm going to think about that for about a month now, I think. <laughs> right? It's, um okay so well, let's put it into context then um you know I, I wanted to talk about your background in czechoslovakia just because i think that's a good way to contextualize it you wanted to put it into context i mean you grew up in a context where freedom was highly abrogated by the state right i mean i wonder if you could talk right. and, about that yeah. and that's probably i think people across across values lose track of how much their values are shaped by their own personal context and so coming from a, a a background where you know freedom was abrogated to a drastic extent is uh, i recognize that it's why i i am 
even though I'm not traditionally conservative, when it comes to things like liberty, I, I you know, these are extremely important values. And among those, free speech would be you know, kind of the most foundational freedom. Obviously, there are different freedoms, um, but yeah, coming from from a system where you know, in Czechoslovakia, we refer internally, you know, in, in Canada and the U.S., when you talk about the all old Warsaw Pact, you, you just you cut the totalitarian dictatorship, all that. The word we use in, in Czechoslovakia was the totality, and I think, and that's the root for totalitarian. But people don't always think about the etymology, and the idea of the the, the, the totality means that the state controls absolutely every aspect of your life, the full totality of your life. There's nothing um, for you. Like if you were in 1984, you know, this, the, the yeah. big brother wants to control absolutely everything. That's why even things like texts are, are, are problematic for, for big brother because it's a moment that you share with one other person in which the state can't enter. And so a, a real totalitarian system um, like the difference between a dictatorship and a totalitarian system is this idea of controlling every aspect of internal and external behavior, life, thinking. Um, and so maybe I've become hypersensitive or, or primed to, to spot these trends by virtue of having escaped from a system like that. And it was, I mean, I, we, we left in, 19, we escaped in 1980. So we had six months in a refugee camp in Austria. Um, oh. We were, you know, it was, it was, it was the old style, you know, running over the wall kind of thing with the family, wow. um, and so it, it leaves a big. I think that that kind of an, uh, you know, escape leaves a stronger mark. Even though I was, I was only eight, but um, you were conscious. I mean, I you were conscious able. To, and, yeah, and, you can remember it, right? And I remember in refugee camp, you know, if, if I was out past curfew, my dad beat the crap out of me because he was terrified that they were uh, that. The, Kids were being kidnapped to take, taken back to uh, Czechoslovakia and the Eastern Bloc countries to force the parents back. So my parents, uh, you know, as an eight-year-old kid, the fear of being out past dark wasn't, you know, stranger danger. It was that the uh, SSB that the Slovak pragmatic. version of the KGB or Czechoslovak version would, would kidnap us because my dad had been in the military and and. Uh, so there was some concern that they would care enough um, about pulling us back. And so, yeah, you, if you grow up with that it, as a childhood form, formative thing, it, it kind of sticks with you. I, I wanted to just, that's an incredible experience. I wanted to just touch a little bit on the, uh, the how, you know, the, the right wing, you mentioned that just a little bit. I, I lived in Slovakia for about a year in the, or about 20 years ago now. So this was after the, uh, the, communist thing came down and but you know so at that time it was still you know maybe 10 years after the uh, separation and not long you know sort of within very recent memory that the wall had come down and all the changes that occurred and you know when I went over there I was young and I had grown up in, in Canada to be you know generally sort of lefty kind of idea where the typical example is something like where well you know, Cuba is, well, yeah, it's a dictatorship, but, you know, they have free health care. And before the before the revolution, the Americans, it was a big gambling thing and it was really corrupt and all this kind of apologetics for things like that for um, for reasons I won't go into right now. And I didn't know anything about Eastern Europe. And so I remember talking to people who were kind of my age who had remembered that 
And when Cuba came up, they were like, Jason, no, you don't understand. It's it's terrible. It's totalitarian. Like you didn't grow up in this kind of thing. They would get really exercised by that, right? For the reason that you're stating that they they had like direct experience with this, you know? And so I, I think that um, for me, just the, as the right wing thing, it, it's it's been, from there I went to South Korea and I, I lived in a country that was, um, you know, was a, an ally and was sort of, you could say it was saved, its freedom was saved by military intervention from, from the outside. And that was really instructive for me as well, especially being able to see North Korea when I lived at one point, I could actually look at it. So I don't understand this, uh, this idea that you and I are right wing because we believe in the, in the individual being, you know, free from, inter, you, know, um, uh, you know, abrogation from the state, right? And the final thing I'll say too, it's very interesting what you said about right-wing dictatorships seem just into just pure power, right? My wife's Dominican, she she grew up, and so there was a dictator there in the 30s and 40s called Trujillo, who was a, he was a really brutal guy, you know, killed lots of people and all this stuff. And he, he even, he was very vain. He renamed the capital city from Santo Domingo to Ciudad Trujillo, you know, which I don't know if you speak Spanish, but Trujillo town or Trujillo city. Um, but as I can understand it, you know, things like sex, I mean, you're mentioning these individual things about people were not all that intervened. He didn't intervene that much in religion. He allowed people to be religious. And do you think that difference is important, you know, when we're talking about dictatorships? I mean, just like, what, what exactly does all this mean about where we're going in the future, you know, with right-wing populism and all that, you know? I do think, I do, I do think it's an it's a important distinction I think both types of uh, dictatorships suck for the people living under them. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do think that that it's easier to find, uh, I hate to use the word safe spaces, but spaces for, for, for individual, for the human spirit within a dictatorship that only wants to control its own levers of power. And we you know, will leave other aspects of, of social engagement and personal engagement alone. I do, I do think that the totalitarian mind um, is the scariest. Um, and I say that even though, like we're, since we're attaching labels, like political labels, I've always considered myself a liberal. Uh, but 20 years ago, liberals really, really cared about the First Amendment. Like that was, the First Amendment was the ultimate liberal uh, value. Now. I think what happens is it's always the people who are culturally out of power who support the First Amendment, because if if you're if you're uh, supporting speech that's already culturally supported, you don't need the First Amendment. You you have that cultural power or that institutional power, and so the First Amendment inherently protects minority opinions um, and allows them room into that discourse. It, it's uh, and so 20 years ago, um, you know, when, when right-wing or relig- the religious mind, you know, the moral majority dominated cultural power, uh, it was the left that, that needed the First Amendment to kind of be allowed to say God doesn't exist or whatever they wanted to say. Now I think the, the roles have changed um, and the, the left, especially the, the progressive left, has, dominates cultural discourse. And so the, the right has rediscovered the importance of the First Amendment um, because they, they're they're culturally out of power. Whatever happens, you know, politically, you know, four years of Trump or whatever, you know, when when you control Hollywood, 
Harvard, um, you know, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, you are the man. So this idea that, you know, in the 60s, it was the, the hippies who were fighting against the man and the man was the military industrial complex. Now the man is woke. So the people who are fighting the man are suddenly on the right. And there's a huge scramble going on now in terms of, of political alignment. Um, sometimes I feel like, look, I like health, free healthcare. I like free education. Um, I'm against corporate power uh, accumulations. I, I think corporations are, are collective just as much as the government is a collective. Um, but the, so traditionally I would be defined as a liberal. I stayed in one spot, but the system shifted around me to where increasingly people are defining me as, as a conservative. And I find that a little bit disorienting because I, I don't self-identify that way. But at this point, I don't, I don't care. Like I, I, I pick my values independently based on issue. And I hate, one, the thing I hate perhaps the most about this trend is I don't, I shouldn't know your, your, your views on gun rights based on your views of COVID, but, or, or, or your, your abortion based on your view of COVID. And, and there it's completely backwards to me that you have, you have, you know, pro-choice in abortion is a left-wing thing, but pro-choice in vaccine mandates is a right-wing thing. And yet I can, you know, for 90% of the population, I, I know that if you're pro-choice in abortion, you're probably gonna be pro-mandate on, on the vaccines, which to me boggles my mind. Like I'm very pro-choice on abortion, which is why 20 years ago, I was considered a liberal because I was thinking, you know, abortion should be legal up until like two years after the baby was born. Um, I'm kidding, but you get the point. Uh, I get the point, um, yeah. <laughs> no, the, the Dutch had an old old uh, policy of if the baby was born kind of not right, you know, a little doctor looked the other way and a little pillow was smothered, you know. <laughs> that, yeah, the Dutch don't mess around, right? No, they, don't uh, mess around. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm kidding about being that. Obviously, pro, pro just for anyone listening, but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I think as long as it's the, the woman's body, it's got nobody's fucking business other than hers. Like until that baby is separate from her body, it's, you know, part of her body. Um, and so uh, being very strongly pro-abortion used to make me liberal, but it also, I'm also by the same philosophical underpinnings, I'm very anti-mandate. Like yeah. I'm triple that, but I'm extremely anti-mandate. I find it the ter terrifying idea with, you know, really bad historical and jurisprudential precedent that nobody seems to pay attention to um, that we can go into if you want, like Buckley Bell and Oliver Wendell Holmes basically using uh, Jacobson v. Massachusetts. Hey, let's go there. Yeah, Jacobson no, I want to. Go ahead. Yeah. I've seen lots of Facebook posts, people saying um, that, you know, after the Spanish flu, Jacobson v. Massachusetts justified, the Supreme Court said vac mandatory vaccinations were constitutional. And I, I saw freaking, you know, elected leaders posting posting this, with no historical or jurisprudential understanding that Jacobson v. Massachusetts was used a decade later in Buck v. Bell by Oliver Wendell Holmes to justify sterilizing, wow. um, sterilizing all mentally handicapped people. And Oliver Wendell Holmes, who you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes is not some some minor justice. His his argument was explicitly saying if the state has the authority to vaccinate, then they clearly must have the authority to sterilize uh, imbeciles, in his word, um, but mentally handicapped people. And this is what liberals are basically paralleling the exact same argument that 
gave the state the power to sterilize anybody that was deemed like basically eugenics. Um, yeah. Because, because it, it, it said the idea was you don't have a right to your own bodily autonomy. Um, the state has, you know, for, for the greater purpose of the state, we, we can mandate these. And to me, being anti-mandate seems like a very liberal position philosophically, but politically, it has been associated with the right. And when I come out as anti-mandate, first people assume I'm an anti-vaxxer, which yeah, I'm not. Which, yeah. Again, I'm triple vaccinated. Yeah. Um, and two, they assume I'm, I'm right-wing. But it's like, do we not care about integrity in our, in our kind of mental structures at all? <laughs> like, are we just picking values based on my team believes this set of th this bucket of values belongs to the left and this bucket of values belongs to the right. And uh, once I choose which bucket, I don't get any freedom in terms of picking and choosing. I've, I've got to consume all those values. And that, that to me is a really terrible trend. It's a, it's a laziness intellectually. I, I agree. And I, that's a terrifying story. I really appreciate you recounting that because it's the eugenics movements were very bad in the US and they were obviously much worse in Germany where they were brought, brought to an even more chilling extreme. But um, I just I wanted to return to this idea of the right wing left wing. First of all, I agree with you that we should set up a, you know, a basic set of values and then just look at the world. Like, you know, I have this, you know, freedom of expression, just I believe in the individual liberty, my, you know, my body is my body. So I apply that to whatever. But is there something about the, you know, Thomas Sowell talked a lot about um, the uh, what he called the unconstrained versus the constrained vision, which um, Steven Pinker called the utopian versus the tragic vision. So the left wing tends to be more, tends to think about the world of looking to the future and going towards a great, you know, something amazingly good in the future, something utopian, and that people are effectively malleable in some way and can be moved in that direction. The, 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 the more so-called right wing, which is, he called a tragic vision, which is that it's accepted that human beings are, you know, uh, weak and venal and that they, you know, they have to, you know, we have to restrain our impulses as individuals and there has to be a systemic forces that function that allow individuals to interact in such a way that you can just get the least bad result. right? That's a very, um, you know, uh, not a very good <laughs> synopsis of that, but gives you a general idea. But I wanted to go back to that because we were talking about how right-wing dictatorships don't intervene as much and and you and in, in the individual and another example of that is pinochet right-wing dictatorships seem more capable of evolving into democracies that I, you know if if you look at if you look at latin america right you see you see a whole pile of military governments right-wing dictatorships uh and uh and so on you know different types of and then there was one communist state one and guess one, guess which one is still the dictatorship in 2022, right? So, you know, Chile is an amazing example. They had this horrible dictator. And I totally agree with you that right-wing dictatorships are awful to, you know, crushing the individual, you know, being able to express himself. But is, is there something in there about the more conservative view of the world that allows for that change into a civil society? Because it seems like if you go back to the Magna Carta, you know, it wasn't to help out. It wasn't a utopian thing. It was just to help the nobles, right? You know what I mean? Like it was, Winston Churchill was not, you know, he didn't care about the people in East London necessarily, but he did care about defending freedom in some way. I don't know. 
maybe I'm wondering if you could speak about that a little bit. It's not really a question, but just you know. No, I, I think I, I, I have some thoughts on that. Um, before we address the, the right wing dictatorship, I, I want to say my view is we need both of those those trends. Uh, any healthy society needs both that uh, forward moving, slightly utopic mindset. And it, just like a car needs a gas pedal and a brake pedal, society needs both a, a gas pedal and a brake pedal. Um, and dysfunctional societies overvalue one over the other. Um, in the, not just a little bit, but it becomes lopsided. Um, you need that tension. I think, I think a lot of people try to find ultimate solutions that don't have tensions. And those are the people getting us in real trouble. Like tensions, whether they're, you know, the scientific method enshrining a disconfirmation mechanism in order to keep science functioning or a system of law where you can, you know, confront your accusers. Yeah, right. Or on a societal level, the only stable uh, stable environments are ones that, that maintain the tension as opposed to trying to resolve it. The minute you go for harmony, you, you fuck society up. Um, and I think that kind of leads into your, your point about the right-wing dictatorships. Um, but I, I think that the reason is not the conservatism versus the liberalism. It's that the utopic visions are usually bigger than one individual. Whereas the, the, the conservative style of dictatorship tends to focus on a strong man. So, you know, Pinochet or, or Putin now in Russia. Um, and these strong men don't really create the same kind of ability to, I mean, short of having their children becoming a monarchy, um, there's no continuity in it. Whereas the, the, the traditionally left, the, the, the systems that are based in utopic future visions um, transcend any one individual. So you can have um, the, the strong man die and the I ideology continues. So I think, I think right-wing systems are rarely, there, there are exceptions, like, you know, Nazism was an ideology, but again, it's really tough to spread that ideology if you're saying that our specific race is the, the supreme race. So unless you just wipe out every other race, you know, you're, you're, not, gonna convince, yeah. you're, you're not gonna right. convince the other races to take your side. Um, so there's a inherent limiting factor. And then people like Pinochet, you know, Pinochet didn't really have a grand narrative. He had Pinochet. So yeah. once Pinochet dies, that That's system it. falls apart. Yeah. And so it creates new openings. Like every time the strong man dies, there's an opportunity for civil society to come back. When Franco dies, there's an opportunity right. for reversion. Um, whereas when, you know, Mao Zedong dies, uh, Dong Xiaoping can come in or, or she or whatever. There's a, a continuation of that. The ideology. Um, yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that's that's really true. I mean, first of all, I wanted to say that it sounds like you're using Jordan, not using Jordan Peterson's idea, but it, it echoes that to me. He talks a lot about the interplay between the, you know, the progressive versus the conservative narratives and without, without, if you, if you have too much emphasis on one, then you get an imbalance and you, you know, um, he talks a lot about that anyway, just it was reminiscent yeah. of that, but um, as to the, yeah, it's, it's very interesting what you're saying about the, um, the continuity. It, it seems like, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the utopian visions of communism is universalist, right? So it's, it, it can be adapted to, that's what demarcates it from Nazism and fascism, right? Fascism is like, 
and Nazism in particular was like, yeah, we're collectivists. We don't care about the individual, but my race is the one, you know, we're, we're you know, either going to kill all the rest or whatever. And the other ones are no good. But communism is almost more insidious because it can be applied to local circumstances anywhere because it's supposed to be for the brotherhood of all mankind. So you see different versions of it all over the world. The North Korean version is totally different from the Cuban version, but they both share that that ideology and it may explain its staying power because you one wonders why communism just seems to even after the fall of the USSR it's continued on both as an idea you know perhaps even in our own society but even countries are still I mean even China still actively people think that it you know changed its ideology when it allowed markets to function but it didn't really it just said okay we're gonna not really pay that much attention to what people are doing and then the economy flourishes but I think Xi is basically reviving the whole, from what I can tell, the, the communist ideology. So, again, not really a question, just some observations on what you were saying. I don't know if you want to. Respond. No, I, I, I fully agree. Um, I think, I think that this, uh, this vision of the, of the, this universal vision, actually, we have, we clearly have some kind of evolutionary pressure towards religious thought, and I, I know traditionally religion is considered right wing. Um, and that's by virtue of, you know, looking from the 20th century, where it, it's in the past and conservatism tends to want to maintain tradition in the past. But I, I do think that the religious mind is actually very, um, I, I, at this point, the left and right stops, stops being useful. But I, I do think that communism was a secular form of religion. Mm. And like just just like religions are based in this kind of first of all they're universalist um especially in countries that didn't you know have hundred year wars where they enshrined you know separation of church and state which allowed you know created a, a, a block against that totality mindset but if you look at the spanish inquisition that was a totalitarian view i mean then religion in the 15th century everywhere you know look at the crusades look these were totalitarian visions of spreading their their big t truth to everybody else, look at Islam. You know, during its 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 uh, expansionary phase, it was all about conversion conversion because they had capital T truth, and communism, I think, was was the inheritor of that mindset into the industrialized age. So it was still a religious mindset, capital T truth. They knew Marx knew the arc of history. Marx was convinced he knew exactly how history was playing out, just as much as the Pope knew what was going to happen after you died. Um, and so I think, I think in terms of human evolutionary psychology, it, it, it was just the industrialized version, the secular version of religion. And so I think what we're seeing now with, you know, some of the woke movements and, and, and behaviors, it is the next step down the line, you know, from religion to communism to woke movements. There's still totalitarian mindsets, universalist mindsets that depend on, on, Look uh, at the, the theme song of, of communism was the international. You know, it was all about spreading it internationally, and that true communism couldn't happen. Like the utopian version of communism couldn't manifest until the entire planet was communist. And so that's straight up from the you know Christians during the Crusades or the Muslims during their expansionary phases, and now with the woke movement that there isn't really room for for in within those philosophies for valid opposition. You know, the opposition has to be crushed, not not negotiated. Um, and so I, I do think that this is a some something within 
our species that, that just keeps coming back, which is, that's why it's not that communism itself, I think is, has, has this perennial uh, attribute. It's, it's communism is a, is a manifestation of something deeper within our psyche as, as, a, as a social species. Yeah, yeah, really, it seems like it, it seems like it shares, there are two big universalist religions. You mentioned Christianity and Islam. They both seem to have the same idea because Judaism is a little bit different, right? Judaism is not universalist. It's tribalist. It's like, I am a Jew and the rest of you, you know, if you want to join me, it's really hard kind of thing, you know, <laughs> members, right? Uh, but, but it's, and, and so I wonder, like, it seems like it, you made a connection it's almost like a lineage where you have Christianity being the first truly universalistic, because I don't think Hinduism or Buddhism are quite as universal. No. I don't know enough about those religions, but they don't. Um, Hinduism is, is sort of like, from what I can understand, it's more or less like nature worshiping religion in India. So export that would be relatively difficult, I think, simply because it's based on multiple gods and specific places in India. And then of course, Buddhism is, it's not even clear that it is a religion. It's more of a psychological mindset in some ways, but my knowledge of that is not very good, but it sounds like you're making the case that that universalism, which began with Christianity and then was picked up by Islam in some senses in a different direction was almost continued by the, by the communists in the late 19th. And then after the Russian revolution, kind of went around the world in a political sense. I, I put the starting point one step further back. Um, the first religion to really create a hard distinction between good and evil was Zoroastrianism. And from the, the, both Christianity and Judaism grew out of Zoroastrianism um, in, in terms of that mindset. And then the Abrahamic, like there was a real big split between the, um, the Abrahamic religions including Judaism and Eastern religions. So if you, and, and I'm no fan of Western religions, but there is uh, the, the, the primary uh, responsibility of a believer in, in all of the Abrahamic religions is to uphold his role, his or her role within the covenant. There's a covenant with God. You basically have a contract. These are contractual religions where you as an, independent person with human agency, um, free will, you make a contract with God. And if, if you uphold your part of the contract, you will go to heaven and have eternal happiness and everything else. If you, that's distinct from the Asian religions, which is Hinduism, Jainism, even Buddhism, um, where there's no, there's no agency really. All there is is uh, finding the knowledge or realizing that everything is one. So God started off as a unified entity and split into male and female. Then first was male and female cow. And then, you know, depending on the, <laughs> the, the, the details. Right, right. Basically everything was one. And then God split itself into multiple manifestations. And the role of the individual human being is to see through this veil of illusion and get to the Satori and Zen or, um, you know, each one has a different name for it, but basically what you're doing is you're coming to an, a point of enlightenment where these artificial or superficial distinctions collapse and you see that you are God. You and God and the chair and the cow and, and, and my coffee, we're all one unified entity. 
And so there's no role, role really for individual human action. Um, and that's relevant in terms of your, your uh, the theme of freedom because the, at least the Abrahamic religions created this idea of free will, freedom, um, human agency, because we have the right to choose between good and evil. Whereas the Asian religions um, or Eastern religions don't really have that. Like the, there's nothing you can do to change your fate. It's all predetermined. It's all set. Um, and all you can do is, you know, take your, your shades off. Um, and so that's why I think what we're, all the freedom we're discussing is a very Western concept. I, I, I lived in Asia for nearly a decade. So I, I've had quite a bit of experience with, with kind of the, the, you know, I lived in Japan. I lived six years in Indonesia. I, I backpacked down for 16 months all over Asia. Um, and when I used to write about art, you can, you can really see it in the difference, different ways that, that Asian artists create art versus Western artists, because we don't even realize how much um, this lineage, this philosophical and existential lineage of, or, or epistemological lineage kind of permeates how we see the, the, the role. Um, and I think that distinction between East and West that, that comes from that split and then comes from the early religious split, I think that that still manifests. Like even South Korea, which is a westernized yeah. country, I'm sure it was way like, you know, totally like a bunch of South Koreans get off the plane, every couple's wearing the same outfit. Yeah, no, 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 they, no, no. they always yeah. match. <laughs> it, it's a very, very, I'm not, it's a very thin I don't veneer. mean that as a derogatory thing. Yeah. I don't mean that derogatory, it's just a different way of processing the world and people who live in only one country um or one ideology uh tend to have a really hard time appreciating just how different moral frameworks can be across cultures which is again what's ironic about the woke movement because they're supposed to be liberal they're supposed to be open-minded <laughs> and understand different you know diverse viewpoints and and they've become so church ladies Mono, yeah, totally mono. Yeah, um, yeah that, that's a really interesting, um, you know, observation about the, the split, just the general split between Asia and Asian thinking versus Abrahamic and perhaps Western, because it's, it's one of these things that, you know, philosophers and commentators for a couple of centuries now have wondered why did the Enlightenment happen when it did, where it did. And some people believe it has some connection to Christianity, that there's some uh, idea that all individuals are supposed to be judged as an individual before God. You are you, right? And and you had, as you pointed out, you have this relationship with God. Now, I, I don't know. Um, I know that a lot of right-wing commentators like Ben Shapiro really love to push that, you know, as a, so I don't know how much I, I want to push it necessarily, but there does seem to be some, some kind of a split there. I wanted to bring it actually to tie it into that because uh, to tie it into something else I wanted to talk to you about, which is Russia, um, which is um, you, you sent me this, uh, the link to that book, which is really interesting. But one of the things people comment on with Russia is this split between the Slavophiles and the Westernizers, right? Going back to at least Peter the Great, perhaps even the Mongols, I mean, who even really knows how far back it goes, but you've got something there because it strikes me when I look at Russia, I see a place that has a lot of these attributes that you're talking about, about, you know, Asian thinking where 
you're just a, you're part of the cog, you're part of mother Russia and you as an individual, it doesn't really matter. That's the modern manifestation, the Soviet time, you were part of the great Soviet international pushing forward, whatever, but you're not really you. But when I read, I was just reading Dostoevsky today, I'm reading one of his books and some of the greatest amazing observations of individual um, internal psychology of the individual seem to come from these Russian writers. And I, I don't know if that's just me observing that as confused by that, or if there's some explanation, or I, I don't know. I, I wonder if, if you have any thoughts on that, just as a, it's, it's very paradoxical, right? You read Dostoevsky and it's all, the, it's all this internal exploration of how you feel in relation to others. And it's very individualistic in, in many ways, because it's really thinking about your own feelings and your own insecurities and your own, but yeah, what did you want to? Say? Yeah, I, I I agree. I think Russia is a is a really interesting collision of of, of these cultural trends, and uh, you mentioned Marquis de Custine's uh, La Russie in 1839, um, Russia in 1839, um, and you know just for the for your audience, Marquis de Custine was was basically is considered the the Russian Tocqueville. Uh, or the Tocqueville of Russia. He um, he was a Russophile, a French Russophile, a monarchist. He, he didn't like some of these democratic trends that were happening in France, and uh, he thought you know Russia was the the, the answer for the world's ills in, in his perspective, and so he went to Russia. And after a couple of years of traveling through Russia, you know he he went in as a as a hundred percent Russophile and came out, you know, outraged about what he saw. Like he couldn't believe. What he saw and in, in the descriptions in the book what's fascinating is from 1839 they would apply just as well to to the russian mindset under the soviets and putin. almost as well to the russian mindset under putin um it's, it's not a question of you know oh putin's a bad guy and the russian people don't support him he's got like 70 to 80 percent support for for what he's doing in ukraine right now um and i think that the the russian cultural mindset it does have this division, but it was it was really there was a hard scar that happened. The golden the Mongol Golden Horde controlled Moscow for 200 years, and that experience shaped the Russian Russian cultural kind of psyche in in, in several ways. One was um, they had this constant sense of victimhood, even though you know they, at this point it spanned 11 time zones, and this is now not not during the Soviet era when they lost a time zone. Um, but they spend 11 time zones by, by viewing themselves as the, as the world victim, which is, it's insane. I mean, you, you don't become that big by being that, the victim. <laughs> or maybe uh, you do, <laughs> or, or maybe that's a way to do it, you know? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, you need, you need, the, right. you need the justification, right? <laughs> yeah, um, right, right. <laughs> but the, the Mongol, the, you know, people who study Russia, they call it, there's the term for this. It's, it's not a theory I came up with. It's called the Mongol yoke. And the Mongol yoke is this, 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 hard you know scarring on the russian psyche that brought in not just as the victim mindset of being controlled by the golden horde but also the, the brutality just the that sheer sense of of you know doesn't matter how much we suffer as long as the national pride goes up you know we'll take any suffering we'll we'll use our soldiers as cannon fodder whatever it takes um and that's not you know like you said it's 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 very anti-individualistic. Like if you look at the Russian tactics during World War II, it was, you know, eh, we have more we have more men than you have bullets. 
So, you know, if you go in yeah. and then they shoot yeah. in the stand follower with a guy behind the officer has a machine gun, the guy in front has a pitchfork, and he's rushing rushing the German guns because they'll just use up, you know. Cut them down. Yeah. And, and they're know, doing the numbers. same thing now with Ukraine. It's amazing. It's 2022, and their, their tactics in Ukraine are to send in the most untrained conscripts first because they just figure, okay, let's let's send in the cannon fire. You know, when the U.S. attacks, they bomb, they, they send in the special forces, they use you know, their best soldiers first. Um, whereas the Russians, no, let's, <laughs> let's send in waves of incompetence first, fire the enemy out, turn into rubble. Um, and the same with Grozny, like, you know, the way they dealt with Grozny, leveled the entire city. The way they dealt with Aleppo in Syria, leveled the entire city. Now they're doing that in Ukraine. And it's, it's straight from, like the Mongol horde had a, had a philosophy. They surrounded the city, and uh, if you pay tribute, if you open the gates and pay tribute, they, they allow the city to, to stay up. If you fought them in any way, like your slightest resistance, and they flattened the entire city. Like not, 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 once you resisted, the Mongol horde would, that was Genghis Khan's way that he conquered, conquered was, I think, still humanity's largest empire, was if you showed any resistance, if you failed to open the doors, they leveled absolutely every single house in, in, in the city. Not Nobody survived, everybody was wiped out, everybody was killed, and then they went to the next. And they created this fear so that, I mean, Moscow opened the gates yeah. so it didn't get leveled. Right. Um, but that mindset is still how they fight. Now you have people like Dostoevsky um, because the Russians, the, the, the worst insult you can give to a Russian is that he's uncultured, Nikotun. And then because they have this inferiority complex with, with Europe, um, there's a weird dynamic that happens within the Slavic cultures. You have the Western Slavs, which are the Czechs, Slovaks, Poles, um, and they always looked at France and, and, and England and, and Germany, but especially France as civilization. And the barbarians to them were the Eastern Slavs, which were the Ukrainians and the Russians and the Belarusians. Um, and then you had the Southern Slavs, like the Serbs, for whom Russia was was big brother that protected them from the Ottoman Empire. So if you talk to a Serb, the Serbs look up to Russians, and because historically they protected them from even 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 greater barbarians in quotes, um, the Ottoman Empire. And so you have this weird uh, hierarchy of of like superiority inferiority, and I think most Anglo's don't realize how much there's an intra-Slav. Uh, Dynamic. Dynamic, Slow where you know, the, the Czechs look down on the Slovaks, the Slovaks look oh. down on the Poles, the Poles look down on the Ukrainians, Ukrainians look down on the Russians, Russians look down on the Serbs, Serbs look down on the Bosnians, Bosnians look down on the Albanians, Albanians look down on the Turks. Um, and by, the, by the end, you're not, but, you're not even Slavic, Slavic anyway, yeah. 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 But I remember uh, you know, a long time ago, I had a Ukrainian girlfriend, and if I really want to set it off, I said, ah, you're basically a Russian, and she would flip out. Um, <laughs> I, I, I take that back. Watching what the Ukrainians are doing right now, I, I regret that. Pretty incredible. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really impressed with, with them. The, the town that my grandmother was born in, Ushhorod, during her lifetime belonged to five different countries. So when, when she was born, it was Austria-Hungary. Then it became uh, Czechoslovakia. Then it became Slovakia. Then it became the Soviet Union. And then it became Ukraine. So when she died, it was already Ukraine. Um, so, you know, yeah. these lands shift you know, all over the place. 
but there is that that Slavic, and that that shifting land is why I'm always so so skeptical of, of you know some conversations we have in North America about you know who who owns the land, who was here first. Oh yeah, yeah. land 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 shifts. Land land doesn't have any permanence. You know, it's always been sh shifted. Um, move around on them. I mean, you know, if, if you were to start going going back in time in Central Europe and saying give give back, it would just be a shit show of oh, yeah. well, I, but be, you know. That's actually possible. true here as well. It, it's true in North America as well. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. Like if, if you just look at you know the the first off oh, was it was tiny new people the, the first people that that Columbus the, the, uh, con uh, contacted, they themselves had. Uh, Taino, the ones Taino, in yeah, Taino, sorry, Taino. Like, like, yeah. I, I haven't read for a while, but the Taino people that Columbus contacted had themselves uh, taken the land from the Carib people, and the Carib people had taken it from the, the Paleo, uh, the former Paleo Indian. I, again, I'm, I'm rusty on, on my knowledge of, of tribes, but because the that wasn't documented as well as it was in Europe, people now lump all these tribes as, as one. That's like calling all the Europeans. Yeah. You know, it, it, it doesn't work. Yeah. Native, you know, the indigenous people in North America were, were just as human when it came to, you know, colonizing each other and, and enslaving each other and, and raping and killing and murdering as, as anybody in Asia or, or Europe or anywhere else. We just created this, this kind of fake facade yeah. where we call them all one people. Yeah. But yeah, go ahead. Anyway, I drifted. Within, yeah. within the, the uh, back to that kind of Russian tension, yeah, they've always, just like, you know, Western Slavs wanted to be like French, the Eastern Slavs wanted to be, well, there's always a connection with France as well. You know, Peter the Great is a great example. He, he wanted to be European so badly, he created St. Petersburg, but his tactics were straight like against Genghis Khan. Like, Peter the Great was not a gentle man. Right. Like, you know, he, <laughs> he was That's brutal. so interesting, yeah. He, he so westernized the country attention. by force, which is which is yeah. contradictory. If westernization is supposed to be about civil rights and people adopting norms, I mean, you could you could you know I wanted to just um, mention a minute ago. I mean, not, not to be argumentative, but there are cases of of our side doing the same type of just tactics. I mean, Hiroshima and the firebombing of Japan as well. And maybe we could draw distinctions there um, because there, there probably are some. It's uh, it seems to be more about the individual of your own country as being not that important. I think is perhaps maybe what you're getting at with the Russians pushing their own young kids now into the Ukraine and then you know sending their own people out to the Gulag or whatever because you're just part of you know you as an individual is. You know, if you're not towing the line and making Russia into this great empire, then you're, you know, you're useless or you're, you know, one of the things I, I wanted to recount to you was I, I have a friend who, who's an American and she left um, the, uh, she was from Belarus and she was Jewish. She left around the same time and a very similar story. They had to go through a long series of things and got to New York. And she said something really interesting that speaks to this point about the individualism. She said that she, she was practicing guitar and then she was learning how to play guitar and she had this chance to go and and do like an audition for this great you know guitar master in Minsk or something and so she, she was working really hard she went there she was all nervous and and she went inside and she strummed the guitar once one chord and the guy just screamed 
get the hell fuck out of here. You're no good. Like just from hearing one chord. And I remember hearing that and thinking, that seems to be how the Russians, that's how they do their sports teams. That's how they do their everything. It's kind of like, if you're not the top of the top, you might as well be nothing, right? So it, it might speak to this concept of individuality. They're striving for excellence, but not for you to be all you can be, like to use the American you know, <laughs> the recruitment thing for the U.S. Army is be all you can be. You're an individual. You're going to be in the U.S. Army. It's just if you can make Russia great, basically, then you have great value to us and we're going to shower you with goods. You're going to be very, very rich and very useful. So I don't know if you wanted to comment on that from your experiences in Czechoslovakia, if that was in any way relevant. Yeah. I don't know. Um, the, the, the sports, the Olympic training is, is a perfect example. Um, you know, periodically, my, my son used to do gymnastics. He still does trampoline gymnastics, but he, he started with a club that was run by Eastern Europeans. Um, and he, 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 was, he was competitive, he was very good. I was on a competitive team, but all, the kids were crying all the time. It was here in Canada because they were just brutal. And at one point, you know, I, I told the coach, I said, look, you know, he's seven years old. It has to stay fun or he's going to lose interest. It's going to be hard, hard to get him to come here. And the coach uh, said, Canadians don't know how to train children. <laughs> and I said, look, I'm, I'm Eastern European too, but I'm not living still in the old country. I know the context is Canada. And they're like, well, Canadians don't know how to make medalists. And I said, I understand the Russian approach to making medalists. The Russian approach to making gold medalists and silver and bronze is you take a thousand athletes, you pump them full of drugs, the steroids, you destroy 990 of them with overtraining, 10 survive, three of those peak on game day, and you win gold, silver, and bronze, and you say we're the best. Um, but meanwhile, you've destroyed 990 kids. And when my kid is, you know, that's one thing, if all you care about is your national pride, then you won the first three medals. But if, 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 if it's your kid, and in this case, it's my kid, the probability is he'll be in the 990, and I'm not gonna tolerate you destroying my kid so that you talk, can talk about how good your club is. Um, Even if and, you can win a gold medal, it's not worth the chance is kind of what you're yeah. saying, right? Yeah. And, uh, and the, the, the odds are extremely negative based on their, their training methodologies. And so, and you see this within athletics from time to time, it's like, oh, they're the Russian training methods. And it's like, the Russian training methods are, are again, the cannon fodder approach. <laughs> Brutal. There's a consistency there across, across uh, uh, domains. Um, and, and just to come back to Hiroshima, like imagine if Russia had been in America's situation. Do you think they would have dropped bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Or do you think it would be in Tokyo and Osaka? I, don't... I, I, I have no doubt that if, if Russia had been in America's role, they the would have bombed Tokyo. Tokyo. Tokyo yeah. The Americans were, were, were trying very hard to say, to, okay, we, we, need, we need to shock them into suing for peace. But we don't necessarily want to kill the largest amount numbers of people we possibly can. Right. Yeah. Um, so I mean, maybe some people that will sound like a distinction without a difference. But I think it. I think there is a difference there. I think there is. Okay. You know, we're in a world war. We're going to do what we need to do to get this done. And it's a brutal, horrible thing we have to do. But we're not going to kind of do more. It's still proportional in some insane way of of, of you know within the insane context of a world war there's still a, a, a greater sense of proportionality. Whereas the Russian approach, again, I mean, 
and not just I mean Grozny uh, in Georgia, their their approach is you fight us, we flatten you. And we flatten your capital. Like Grozny, you know, they, they were fighting in Chechnya. It's not like they flattened some second or third tier city. They they flattened the, the capital to the point where it, it I mean Grozny was completely rebelized. Um and so I'm I'm no fan of of uh, there are a lot of things with American cultural influence in the world that I will fight against, but I, I, I don't like absolutist views, just like I, I'm no fan of Christianity, but I also think that Christianity helped shape a lot of the freedom uh, and the individualist mindsets that we have. You know, these things are not one-dimensional or one-sided. The, the same thing can be a positive in some senses and a negative in the other. And I, I definitely think that as much as the U.S. has over the last 20 years become kind of like a senescent cells shooting out fast, I'm getting biological here, but as, as much as it, it's it's sending poisons into the world culturally for the last 20 years, I, I think there's no comparison between the U.S., China, and Russia. Um, you know, the U.S. spent 200 years as, as, as genuinely a force for good. It it was very imperfect in how it did it. It's getting worse and worse, but there's an order of magnitude difference between the way America does things and the way Russia or China do. When America goes in, as fucked up as Afghanistan and Iraq were, they leave, eventually they leave. When the Russians come in, they do not leave. Like they only leave if you, if you shoot them. <laughs> they, they did leave Afghanistan eventually. Uh, that's true. But that's because it's a, of a unique case as, yeah. as a country. It's a very, yeah. I mean, it's uh, this really gets to uh, a lot of the questions I've been thinking. I've been thinking about a lot lately to do with Russia because you know everyone is now an expert. You know, when you're reading the, the media, everyone knows everything about Russia and the war in Ukraine, and it almost seems like we're we're sort of overlaying a Western point of view and and you know onto Russia when we're ascribing their motives. Like you know, I don't think we can understand what their motives are. They're so different. I mean, you're pointing out their motives are to destroy altogether rather than, because if people were looking at that tactic, they were thinking, geez, it looks like a terrible decision to send all their boys in and everything. And, and I, I remember thinking hmm, that could be an explanation. And you've just given me another explanation. Send in all the young ones to get mowed down by all the, the fighters if they fight back, which they are fighting back. So, you know, from a, so you don't waste your good soldiers on the, on the first, I mean, it, it, that's actually a logical reason that someone like, you know, people in my family who are really, um, in you know, into this war and talking, say, oh, that's such a stupid move. How stupid can he be? I'm thinking, I don't think Putin is really a stupid man. He may be, um, I don't know whether he's lost his mind or whether he has some longer term strategy. This is something I'm wavering back and forth on. You know, if he's lost his mind altogether, then we really need to worry because he's got his finger on this nuclear button. A more likely scenario is he's probably got, he probably has certain different objectives. One is to totally take over Ukraine, keep it from becoming a Western ally. Another might be to, you know, push further into it and turn it into a rump state and have it be kind of like a, um, like, like Germany was in the Cold War, right? You had a kind of a, um, it was divided and then there was a city, you know, maybe, maybe Kiev could become a something that might be another strategy to keep you know, what he considers a threat, but um, those are all just sort of tactical ideas. I don't know, but I wanted to ask you about this idea of um, how, because the real question comes down to, can Russia become a sort of quote unquote normal Western country? I mean, Germany was not, 
right? Germany was fighting back against the idea of individualism from, from its, you know, from it seems like from its birthplace, in the, 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 from, you know, the, the unification in the 1870s up to the Nazis, it basically pushed back against the idea of individualism, right? From the Prussians up to, and so the only way that was able to change was a kind of total suppression of the country in some ways. So do you think the only way that Russia could westernize would be if it were totally crushed and occupied? And I don't think that's even possible for us to do, but do you think there's any way short of that that they might actually transform into kind of a liberal democracy? Do you think that's in any way possible? That's, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm kind of, I'd like to go back to your earlier thing about the tactics and then bring it back sure, to this. Sure. Um, yeah. I, I, just as, as an aside, I think, I do think that Putin had a lot of, I think he miscalculated dramatically. And I think the reason he did that comes back to the earlier, you know, idea of the strongman uh, dictatorship that they, they end up getting bad information because everybody's terrified of them and everybody tells them what they want to hear. And again, the, the value of of of, uh, of freedom broadly defined, where where you maintain this confirmation mechanisms, is that you have a corrective function in in terms of of going down rabbit holes that are completely wrong. And I think that because everybody was so terrified of Putin around, I mean, you saw that when he was talking to his head of security, the guy was stuttering, and, and you know, his his highest of officers are terrified of him, and they're terrified of telling him something he doesn't want to hear. So I do. My guess, I'm, I'm just guessing here. I, I do actually think that he he screwed up. Um, but again, what you were talking about there in terms of the cultural difference, I think one thing that, that Anglo-Saxon commentators, like some of the, one of the best uh, writers, English or English language writers on Russia is Anne Applebaum. But mm -hmm. I think even she, yeah. I, I read a thing of hers where she, even she kind of missed one idea that, in, in Slavic culture, and especially Russian, like it, it's strong, the further east you go, the stronger this is. Compromise is not seen the way it's seen in, in Anglo cultures. Compromise is weakness. And if, if, if you show me a pussy, I will fuck it. If, if you're a pussy, I'll fuck you. Yeah. And then you're inviting me. It's, it's, not, it's not like, it's your fault. You know, right. and we, we, we kept the peace with Russia for 70 years, not by, by trying to find compromise, by saying, you attack Europe and we'll nuke the shit out of you. And that kept the peace. That's how you keep peace with Russian is by being strong. Um, the minute you show weakness, it's an invitation. And so we have so many people talking about, oh, what, you know, NATO's expansion is what, uh, what made Putin upset or whatever. Bullshit. I, I firmly believe he, he thought that a second Trump term would lead to this disbanding of NATO, or at least a drastic weakening of NATO, and then he could come in. And I don't think he expected uh, Biden to win. I think that it totally threw off his calculations. And then he was like, he got bad information. So like, oh, let's try it anyway, because NATO's, you know, too disorganized to actually do anything. Um, and they, they want, basically, he, he saw weakness. And so he, he took it. People, people think he's he's a grand master in chess or some. Or they used to before Ukraine. I never thought Putin was a chess player. He, he's he's a judoka, and uh, in judo, there's a concept called kuzushi. You you push and you pull and you you try and off balance your opponent to see wh where you know, how they step, how they move, where their their where the opening is. 
And I think Putin have been, has been playing judo for, for a decade now, pushing and pulling, pushing and pulling. And he thought that he, he pushed, he saw Ukraine was off balance and he went for the throw, except Ukraine wasn't nearly as off balance as he thought. Um, and it, it, it's a purely opportunistic judo-based approach to, to politics where I don't think he knew whether he was going to invade until a week or two before. Like he was like, okay, let's, let's put them in there and see. Like, let's see how, what the reaction's like. And you know, you had Obama, and not just now, I mean, you had Obama refusing to send uh, offensive weapons. Then you had Trump putting conditions on the javelins to help his re-election campaign. Um, you had, you know, again with Obama, everybody mocked Romney for saying Russia is going to be a, a political foe. You had Biden, who's, who tends to be very conciliatory and, you know, doesn't seem like he's all there. Um, and so he sensed weakness and that's why he invaded. And giving in and, and compromise. Now I think the world finally is realizing this and they're realizing that, okay, we have to meet force with force. But it's a shame that they did it as late as they did because they created a sense within, within Russia that, hey, look, it's, it's, it's a pussy, I'll fuck it. Right. Um, so uh, that so, sorry to interrupt. That mindset I just, is hard I, to integrate. I, I just to wanted to. I just wanted to bring in something. Um, just just a, a, a point there, just quickly. Uh, do you think it's crazy to to look at the world through? If I put on my Russian patriot paranoid hat, which looks around at the world and is terrified of invaders in some senses, right? Because I've got this huge country, and I'm really and I'm freaked out by that. And I see I used to have a buffer zone going all the way to Berlin, and that's been shorn back bit by bit. And now I've got, you know, NATO allies right on my border in the Baltic states. And then I've got, you know, and I've managed to keep Belarus under control. But, you know, now I'm seeing it. Do you think it's not that's not one way to see it as like a kind of not that not that we provoked him. It's not right the right way. And I'm not saying that we did, but just from his perspective, is that possible to see it that way? Or do you think it's just that's oh, no, absolutely absolutely I think yeah. I think I think that's how you see it. Um, but you know, this is very close to the German, the Nazi concept of Lebensraum. You know, the Nazis thought we need Lebensraum, we need room to live. So the Russians need a buffer, uh, <laughs> a bigger buffer. Uh, for a different reason. Different reason, for, though. For, for different, different reasons, reason. yeah. For different reason, and and I, I do think that there's a um, if you were to ask a Russian patriot why, the the answer would be something along the lines of um, you know this this Western cultural hegemony, the, the monolithic. Uh, I mean, I think to some extent Russia would blame the woke movement, um, and then and there is a trend among the anti woke to start sounding. In a way parallel to the uh, walk in terms of becoming rigid as an ideology and becoming you know, totalizing. But anyway, I, I I do think that he sees the and and not not completely without some validity that there is a increasingly monolithic world culture that is really antithetical to kind of Slavic values. Um, you know. Slavs respect strength, and we've created a culture in the West where we put victims on a pedestal, um, and and people are you know where 50 years ago, like John has has, has posted, you know, in, when when we gave social value to heroes, people had acts of fake heroism. Now, when you give social value to victims, you have fake, fake victims. victims. You have micro 
you have microaggressions. Like if, 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 it's, if you're not lucky enough to be aggressed in a macro way, you have to create a micro, you know, just, just to get something, some kind of victim status because that's where power comes from. And that, that mindset is so repulsive to a Slavic cultural uh, moral framework that, you know, and not, not just Russian, like, I mean, it, it's true for, for where I come from too. Like we respect strength. That doesn't mean we, we you know, we still want to protect. Part of being strong is protecting the weak and stuff. But but, but genuinely weak, not not people who are who are um, feigning, feigning weakness, playing possum or whatever. And so, I I, I do think that he, he feels like in order to create. I don't buy the military buffer idea, but I no. do think that there's that he has a sense of, of cultural imperialism that's creeping in and in in, in order to maintain that in order to create an alternative there's a critical mass that you need you can't just be one country like i I don't think he had any intention of gob like he wanted crimea as part of russia but i think for ukraine he wanted puppet just like he has in belarus with lukashenko he he wants these other countries to be create this this community of, of slavic cultures that that will resist the, the Western decadence, weakness, wokeism, whatever you want to call it. Um, like, you know, if, if you look at gay rights in Russia, if you look at any kind of traditional liberal rights, they're, they're, they're brutal. Um, and there is a real, uh, there's a cultural gap there. And I, I do think that they feel, um, they feel under threat from encroached culturally. Encroached. encroached. But, but, yeah. But I would say that they're more scared of Hollywood than they are, than they are yeah. of NATO. <laughs> you know, and, and that's why with, with you know, the, the, the young people in Russia, like uh, to some extent, there is a, there is a distinction now between the, the young and the old in Russia. And, and the young people, you know, a lot of them are kind of becoming more westernized and, and they're scared. Um, and they're still a very small minority, but you do have a, a demographic now in Russia, that that really is Westernized, and that is resisting yeah. to some extent, but they're still they're they're, they're minorities. Uh, yeah, I want I want to come back to that in a minute. But something that struck me there was that he he you know Eastern Slavs at least, and perhaps other Slavs, they respect strength. So so we've got this now we've got in the West we've got this woke idea where if you're a victim, you're put up on a pedestal. And it just struck me how you mentioned how vic- victimization, real victimization, a, a sense of real victimization is sort of a core part of the Russian national identity. And I'm just, this is kind of like, it's sort of like almost like a deep psychological thing. I don't know if there's something going on there where, um, you know, it's occurring to me as I'm saying this, that maybe they're they're looking at that and they're sort of almost threatened by that in some way, because that is, I don't know, I'm, I'm not even sure what I'm saying, but just the, there's, it, it, it spoke to me as you were saying it, that there's this, all these contradictions in the Russian uh, mentality. And that could be yet another one that they, that they, while they have this sense of victimization, they'll also, you know, they have this, like, they, they respect strength at the same time. And yet we've got the reverse. We've got yeah, we, we we actually are strong, but we don't respect strength, right? It's kind of, uh, but um, but I did want to return to this um, to, to this thing that you were saying at the end there about um, uh, the you know the, the young people in Russia. This goes back to what I was wondering: is how possible is it that Russia could transform? Um, because I have a friend when I lived in in South Korea, I had a friend who was 
uh, raised in what he called Leningrad. He was, an, he's an older guy. We're still friends. He was, he was from New Zealand. And he was sort of firmly convinced that if the Bolsheviks hadn't taken power in 1917, that the country was kind of moving towards uh, kind of a, a, a modernization was eventually going to democratize and have, you know, become more like a Western European country. And this is an ongoing question because some some people do point to the uniqueness of 1917 as, as a kind of a uh, real demarcation point in their history, really changing it. And it did lead to them becoming a superpower of sorts. It did. It was the catalyst along with World War II, where they kind of got lucky and managed to ally with some stronger powers and they ended up with all this stuff taken over. But I just wonder, do, do you think that this movement now, like, are, is it something that could turn into a real thing and Russia could become a real Western nation? Or is this, you know, is this just like 1905 again and it's all going to get rolled back eventually? Someone's going to, and we're just going to go back to the old um, Slavophile domination of Russia. I don't know. What do you think about that? Uh, that's a tough question. Um, if, you know, there's a saying that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And uh, I mean, despite all the investment portfolio warnings that past performance doesn't predict future performance. So you have those two ideas arguing against each other, but you know, this, this concept that Russia is, is westernizing or turning into a European nation, it's all through Marquis de Custine in 1839. Like we've been having this conversation for 200 years and they still, they consistently fail to westernize. Um, yeah. And there's always been, like you mentioned Dostoevsky, there has always been that 10% uh, of, you know, amazing writers, thinkers, um, like beautiful art that comes out of, out of Russia. Incredible. Um, incredible. And, and, and depth of kind of, the Russians always talk about how deep the Russian soul is. And, you know, it, it could just be very really conflicted. Um, but that number still see, always seems to stay in like the 10 to 20%, whether it's under the Tsars or uh, under the communists, you know, you have Khrushchev trying to soften some of Stalin's extremes. And um, this dynamic keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. And that makes me skeptical how much it, it can adjust. Now, at the same time, globalism has been an insanely powerful force for uh, conformism like in, uh, international conformism. And, and you know, if, if cultures were an ecology, we would be talking about you know, what a massive die off in ecological diversity we've seen over the last, uh, you know, two or 300 years. Um, I, I'm a big fan of ecological diversity in, in cultural terms. Like I, 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 whether it's, you know, having as many different plants as possible. I, I love the idea of whether it's the U.S. being, you know, 50 laboratories with independent ideas, and you'd see which one works the best, I, I think that, you know, there there is something to be said for nation states, especially smaller nation states that have they each take a different path so that we can evaluate which path is superior. Like we need that competition, we need that uh, ability to to test different theories. Um, now, once and the modern world is small countries don't survive in, in, culturally. So you have these massive blocks, you know, America, China, Europe, Russia. Um, 
so Europe, Europe is, yeah, I, I don't, that's an interesting question. I mean, you, you get into a lot of details there about what that means. If you look at Europe, so you're reminding me of the Samuel Huntington analysis. I don't know if you ever read that book, uh, Clash of Civilizations. That's, that's a really interesting. Oh, yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, I haven't read it. Yeah, and, and so he had the world divided into sin, Sino-Civilization and then Islamic and uh, Western. And he, he said Latin America is sort of on the fence between being its own unique culture or a part of Western culture. It seems to have moved into the Western sphere, I think, since the Cold War. Um, but, the, the, you know, how, how diverse should the world be in, in the sense that, you know, sh should it, you, you know, should we have, should we not try and promote the idea of individualism across the world? Is that too much westernization of, say, Ch the Chinese and the Thais and the Indians and, the, you know, or should we just say all humans matter? Right, whether they're in China or whether they're in the United States or Canada, or you, you know, it's a, it's a difficult problem there. If you want to have that diversity, coming with that diversity might you might come with, you know, the CCP might be part of that diversity, right? Maybe I yeah. hope, but you know, is that something? And, and I, I think I think it depends on on your your perspective or your, your where you're standing. I again, like I started from the beginning, I, I think context is important. I, I don't think there are answers that are independent of point of view and right. if i'm living in the ccp i'm going to be fighting for you know a much more westernized democratic um state if i'm living in canada as long as the ccp is not expanding itself and you know changing my my movies in order to conform to their values um like they're doing uh then maybe there is a i mean there's a risk of <laughs> of turning the world into a human zoo where you want to maintain all the different zoo animals in separate yeah. cases. Um, that, that would be the that would be the, the counter argument to this diversity idea. But as much as I believe in the individual, part of that belief means that I know I should doubt I should maintain doubt that my own prescriptions are applicable to other people. It's true. And so I'm extremely pro-individual, but within that includes not forcing that individualism on others. Um, yeah. And that's a, hard, that's a hard balancing act to maintain. It's a hard balancing act to maintain on an individual level, and it's an even harder balancing act to maintain on a, on a cultural or, or national or societal level. Um, so I don't know what the answer is, except that I, I have a natural tendency to think that more tension is better as long as it doesn't turn violent or as long as you know you're not creating opportunities for those more toxic from my perspective those more toxic cultures to start invading their neighbors um so much like you know this, this, the beauty of the scientific method and i i come back to this a lot the beauty of the scientific method is that it systematizes disconfirmation it's a disconfirmation mechanism that's put within certain guardrails so that you know you need to speak the same language before you can play at the score play in, in, in that field. But once you have that that set of, of skills and knowledge, you you want to threaten existing theories. You want to be constantly disproving each other. You don't want to go in a good scientist doesn't try to prove himself right. A good scientist has an idea and does everything he can to prove himself wrong. Um, and I, I think COVID has 
really done damage to science uh, from that perspective. But um, that same disconfirmation mechanism, I think, could be applied to international and in interactions where you, like, and we kind of had the Pax Americana that, you know, countries could go their own way as long as they weren't invading each other's territory. Um, and yes, there's still ways to fuck each other up. There's still ways to mess with each other. But as long as you're not, you know, sending tanks and trying to consume territory the way Putin is doing now, um, you, kind of, there's room for, for that kind of tensions and disagreement. So, and I don't know who, who's, who's going to enforce that idea. I mean, in a sense, we're doing it. You know, the, the massive global sanctions on Russia show that, you know, we, we are kind of maintaining those guardrails to some extent. It's, it's you know, it's a soft guardrail, not a hard one, but uh, to some extent that's happening. Um, and and kind of, I, I... If I could just interject quickly, it seems to me that I mean, I was talking about Germany before, how Germany hesitated and pushed, well, actually pushed back actively up until the end. And then it seems like there was a period of hesitation because, it, you know, from, from 1945, almost up to like the invasion of Ukraine, where it was kind of like, you know, the, there were still active communists there. And then it seems like Germany, turned the German government turning around so profoundly seems like a huge shift to me. That seems monumental in some ways. They're really over on, on the Western side now. Like for, It seems like, anyway, it might not last. Now. Yeah. I mean, I, I, Possibly for their own it, selfish reasons. They don't, you know, they, they, <laughs> they know that Russia is a threat to them. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, Germany Germany's a funny case because there's an argument to, to be made that, that Germany is constantly trying to fuck up Europe. Um, you know, World War I, World War II, Angela Merkel with the kind of completely unplanned and unsystematized absorption of, of way more immigrants knowing that it would create oh, a backlash disaster. i'm an immigrant I, I was a refugee i i i understand the need for refugees and immigration but the way it was done was just it's almost like she was trying to destroy europe um, yeah yeah and 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 this is going to be really politically incorrect but and i'm jumping topics but because we're talking about the the immigration Look at the Ukrainian immigrants, uh, the refugees. They're women and children. The, the, the men 18 to 65 stay and fight. When you look at the Syrian refugees, they were overwhelmingly single men because they had the, the means to, to run. And to me, that's a massive cultural distinction that you know, the, the Ukrainians, the men stay and fight. And maybe it's the you know, it's old macho Slav in me, but, but I, I've, seen, I've seen a lot. Of, the reason I bring this up because just this morning, and, and not for the first time, I, I keep seeing cartoons about how Europe is treating you know, Im Ukrainian immigrants differently from, from like Syrian immigrants. And I, I'm sure you saw on John's wall that there was an idea that it's natural to treat your neighbors differently than somebody who lives on the other side of town. Um, but also, I, I think for me, I have a much higher sympathy for, for families, for women and children and for cultures that where the men stay and fight. And again, maybe this is completely barbaric, Slavic, whatever you want to call it, but I, I, I respect people where, where you're yeah. saving the women and children, but the men stay and fight. Um, women and children now, are the future. I, I don't want to right? overstate that. Like there were, there were a lot of families from the Syrian uh, crisis too, and there were a lot of you know, really horrid stories of, of 
women and children who, who really needed rescuing. Um, I just, the, the, the people I did not have the sympathy for were the 20 year old men who, you know, fled on their own and pushed their um, way to the front of the line, basically. Pushed their way to the front of the line, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I did want to talk a little bit about your experiences as a refugee. It seems like we're coming around to that as we move towards closing. Um, it seems like the different contexts of backgrounds of, um, of refugees really frames, again, this goes back to what you're saying about your, uh, you know, the, the, the situational, you know, the con contextual view of freedom. Uh, because I've noticed, um, I'm very plugged into the Latin American community here in Montreal, I, you know, my, my wife and I a lot of our friends and so on are. And so I've noticed that immigrants and refugees from most Latin American countries are sort of apolitical, right? They're kind of, you know, they're, they don't really care that much. They've mostly, mostly come here for, um, you know, for economic opportunities and perhaps more freedom in, in, a, in, a, more, in a social sense, you know, perhaps maybe. But, um, but one exception are Chileans. Chileans, um, and this goes back to Pinochet, because the Chileans tend to be, and my colleague is like this, they tend to be really hard leftists, like extreme leftists. And the reason is obvious because it, the, the Pinochet cracked down on hard leftists. So when they started to come to Canada in the 70s and 80s, uh, they were escaping, uh, you know. And I just, I just wonder this, you're making me, I was thinking about this before I interviewed you, your views came from, you know, you escaped a communist dictatorship. You've got Ukrainian refugees are mostly women and children. Women and children are supposed to be the future of any society, right? They yeah. bear children and children are young and have a future and men are older. Um, and, and I'm, and you're now you're mentioning Syria and I'm just, it's, um, I don't know whether this is, you know, what the effects of that are over the longer term, because um, the, the people who come to, you know, the idea that immigrants come here and then, you know, we and refugees and then they just become Canadians is partly true, but they also bring their own experiences and their own. And you mentioned in Germany how the numbers, enormous, huge influx, um, because, you know, so is that going to permanently change Germany? We don't know. Right. Um, what is a proper number of flow? What is the background that, you know, um, I, it's not really, again, it's not really a question, just that you, yeah. just your background was interesting there to me, you know. No, and, and I, I think one thing you might find interesting, you know, when, when we came to Canada, we, we fled. So I mean, we were refugees and, and my, my father was very clear that once you know, we left Czechoslovakia and we're, Canada saved us. You know, we were six months in a refugee camp. We applied and, and Canada accepted us after six months. Um, and he, his loyalty was, was an absolute shift. So if you asked him, you know, when he and I would travel sometimes after, he said, where are you from? Canada. No, you have an accent. What kind of accent is it? It's an Ottawa accent. Like you had to ask him, where was he born? For the word, for the word Czechoslovakia to come out of his mouth, you had to, the question had to be, where were you born? Not where are you from, what national, what that ethnicity are you? There's always Canadian, Canadian, Canadian. Good um, for him. Good for your yeah. father, by the way. I really appreciate people like that because they, they tend to be, they tend to really recognize the good things about this country. I think that, but. Yeah, and, and, and the idea that, okay, I had to make a choice. I had to flee my old, I made a conscious decision to change cultures. Like, and of course it doesn't all go away. Like the, the, the deeper cultural elements remain uh, you know i was only eight but i was still brought up much more like a slovak you know i was 
I was six years old, I was babysitting my six month old brother. And in Canada, you know, I was eight and I was babysitting my, my two year old brother. And, you know, that's not culturally normal here. Um, <laughs> like, uh, that's hilarious. <laughs> you, you maintain the cultural elements, but in terms of the, like, I, I remember it, for a long time, it was so strange to us that you'd ask somebody, you know, where they, where they were from, and it said Ireland. And so, oh, which which town? Oh, my great great grandfather was like, or you know, they say they're <laughs> they're Spanish or Irish or whatever, and they were born here. Yeah, like there's a there's a guy I I, I compete in jujitsu. Um, he he's actually the one heavyweight battle the battle, uh, one heavyweight champion. He, he ripped my ribs off my sternum, and he kept identifying as an Indian wrestler, like from India, and then I. Uh, because we had, he, he, he broke my sternum, so I looked him up, and he was born here. And it was, it's so wow. weird to me as somebody who was, why would you call yourself Indian if you were born in Canada? You're Canadian. Um, and I think, I think refugees who are not, not economic immigrants, but refugees who really have it black and white when they change, they're, they're, especially during the Cold War, because there was a real political element or dimension to it, um, they we're more likely to, to integrate. Now, everybody integrates eventually to some level. I mean, you have a lot, you said Latin America, I, I think a lot of Latin American uh, immigrants integrate actually really, really well. Um, they're, they're very enthusiastic to Im integrate. My yeah, they're enthusiastic really to integrate. interested in learning French and she wanted to, yeah. you know, really, this was, she's really she was studying for the exam. They're, they, and yeah. Common for Latins who come here. I yeah, think. it's very common for Latins, and and, and there it's, it undermines this theory that political refugees are different from economic ones. I think that the overall that that distinction holds mostly, but not not fully, because Latin American immigrants are a great example, um, and and they're really a good example of how the right shoots itself in the in, in the foot, because so many Latin Americans are, are religious, like they would naturally be Republican or conservative voters. But because the right is so xenophobic, they push them to the left. So the, the the only reason Hispanics are voting with Democrats in the states or with you know liberals in Canada is because the right wing parties come across as as xenophobic. Not and much. So, that's changing. That's changing. That's changing now. Yeah, it is. Hispanics um, have moved over in the last U.S. presidential election. Yeah. So, way. So um, the Democrats um, do play that card at their peril if they think that demography is destiny that it's just going to be that's a very dangerous game but that's a parenthesis you know well i think i think the latin, latin immigrant the, the, what is like like three percent like the term latinx and yet the democrats insist, insist on using latinx it's like the, the, i had to level... explain that to my wife i had to believe she's she like what is it? she'd never heard of it and i was explaining to it and she she, she I, I could tell she couldn't understand she doesn't speak english right so i had to explain well in english there's no gender and so it's considered sexist and she was sort of looking at me like what like that doesn't make any sense like just because latino latina are just what you call people right it's like but the, again this is know. a mind-boggling inconsistency to me that the level of, of ethnocentrism required to create latinx like th this used to be this is as bad as the ugly american nouveau riche going to europe you know in, in, in the old days and just thinking everybody you know was only imperial or whatever whatever the example is it is so deeply ethnocentric to apply American woke values onto, say, Spanish, mm -hmm. or or or, and they just don't see it. Like it, I don't understand how these people can call themselves liberals when they are so 
certain they have the God-given truth, except God is not God. It's like progress. <laughs> yeah. And um, like the, the, that, that certainty of is, is the most conservative, psychologically conservative thing I can think of. Like to me, liberals are constantly self-doubting, constantly open to the idea of, of heterodox thinking. You know, liberals were the ones who are supposed to, to uh, be blasphemous. No, and, and the conservatives free are the speech. ones who are all this is sacred. This is sacred. Yeah, free and, and now what we have is, is self-identified liberals are creating these taboos everywhere. They're the church ladies, and they still think of themselves as liberal. And that to me is, is just like I'm not I'm not willing to give up the the word liberal. Um, it, I, I call myself I call myself a word. classical liberal. I I, I literally yeah. use that word because it distinguishes from first of all the word liberal in the United States tend to tends to mean basically more leftist progressivist versus liberal in other countries. You know, in, in the UK or Australia, it tends to mean more, more what you're talking about. Yeah. But I did want to return to this uh, this notion of integration just for a minute, and then I want to uh, move towards closing with something um, just about the truckers, but. Integration, it's interesting what you're saying, because it, it, one of the reasons perhaps Latin Americans tend to, even though they're not refugees, the, the fact that they tend to attach is because most Latin American countries have very strong senses of national identity. They, they have their flags and they fought wars of independence in most cases. My wife, uh, uh, being Dominican, they fought a war against Haiti, which, you know, you think, well, you know, what country would have to fight against Haiti to become independent, but they did. And, uh, and that's a big deal for them. They, 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 you know, they raised the flag, they're taught to be, you know, and so I wonder if they just bring this idea that, that they come here and that, well, of course, you just, you, you want to be patriotic for a country. It's what you do. That's what people do. And one of the things just about this thing about you were mentioning how this um, jujitsu guy was born in Canada, but, you know, I think that from many years as a Seja professor, I've, I've, uh, I've found that my students, and I've actually done this empirically, it's a long story of how I did it empirically, but from years of talking individually with students almost on a survey level, that if a student um, was born here, but of a non what we would call de souche, right, background. That would be um, a background of either Anglo, Irish, Canadian, or French Canadian in background. Then they almost always, if you ask what their nationality is, they are going to write down Haitian or, you know, uh, Moroccan or Russian or whatever their parents came from. And I've even found many cases where, where the people were half French Canadian and half some other nationality, and they identify with the nationality of their immigrant father or mother, which is so absurd to me because they, they're even half anchored on, even if you're looking at it through the genetic lens. And I, my theory is part of the reason for that is because Canada is a very fragile country. It's got this balkanized, it's very big and um, different regional things. It's got these two languages that have a long history of kind of interacting, not always in positive ways. So one of the ways we came up to deal with this um, was, um, we, you know, was to create this idea of multiculturalism, right? Which, and so the, which is that, you know, so Canadian culture is not really that important. So we get to this absurd point where Justin Trudeau says Canada is a post-national nation, right? Which I don't even understand, like just hearing that, I'm thinking like, I know it's supposed to sound hip and cool and I get what he's sort of trying to say, but it's also just contradictory. And my own personal view of this is from doing these interviews with my students every every year at the beginning is 
I just think if I do, if I talk to, you know, at the end of my career, it'll be some number of thousands of them. And I look them in the eyes because usually I have them sitting across from me and they've written down Haitian or Moroccan or something. And I say, oh, okay, so you were born in Haiti. And they'll say, oh, no, no, I was born here. You know, and I said, okay, I said, is it what's the what? Sorry, the, sorry, the credit. What's the exact phrasing of the question? Like, how is, is it phrased? Nationality. What is your nationality? That's just what is wow. your nationality? Yeah. And I've done this. I started talking about it in my classes around the time of the um, when the Parti Québécois proposed this charter of values. And there was, you know, the leftists were all freaking out how this was so racist and everything. And so I was talking about it in my classes. And one of my students said something I'll never forget. You know, he said, you know, my my cousins in I have cousins in New York and in Paris. And if you ask them their nationality, they immediately say French or American. But I still say Congolese. And I remember thinking that even though I was born here, and, I remember, and he said, and he wasn't saying this to be like, you know, in any way obnoxious. He was just pointing it out as a statement of and, and it's not his fault. So we've been sending this message to these people. You know, Canada's not really a real country. Your grandparents and your parents' country, that's a real country. You know, you should be focused on that culture and not. And and this, I think, you know, it's kind of it makes us very cosmopolitan. Right. We have this uh, very interesting and relaxed view. Right. On the one sense. But is it sustainable over the longer term? Right. So my, my, my thinking is if I if I sit across from a few thousand people over the course of my career and look them right in the eyes and say, um, you're as Canadian as me. You know, you were born here. I was born here. So um, it, it, we're, we're effectively exactly the same in terms of our nationality. Right. Then maybe that will have some sort of butterfly ripple effect or maybe I'm just naive, but uh, it, it could be a feature of Canada not wanting to be like Americans, too, you know, maybe something. Yeah. But I don't know if you want. Yeah, there, there, there could be a deeper level bond, national bonding happening through that oppositional element, like you said, we're not in America, America's a melting pot. So the, the biggest threat to our national identity is the US. So we're going to, you know, be contrary to that as a way of defining ourselves. I, I think there's some element of, of that um, but on a more on a more general level and come back to something I, we talked about earlier i i'm a huge believer in diversity like i really really yeah. love the idea of a diversity but the only diversity that ma matters to me is a diversity of thought now diversity of identity has for a very long time been a, a, a pretty good proxy for diversity of thought if you take people from completely different cultures, um, that they're going to look at problems from different perspectives. And what I want is people to look at problems from different perspectives. Now, we've kind of put the cart before the horse, and we started prioritizing diversity of melanin levels uh, as somehow more important than the diversity of thought. And there's a lot of research, and, and, and we're really, you know, split personality on this because there's excellent research showing that uh, boards of directors of, of, of big companies, diverse boards have better performance than monolithic boards. So if you have a board with you know, lots of people, different colors and ethnicities and genders, um, the companies do better than the board that's all 60 year old white men. Um, and people use that as justification for why diversity is, is economically important and it's, it's a way of selling uh, DEI type uh, approaches, but there's a, it, it's kind of like the argument that, you know, uh, murder and ice cream sales are, are correlated. Murder and ice cream sales have well, well, like almost perfect correlation. 
And it's not because ice cream causes murder. It's because they both happen Hot in weather. the summer. Hot weather. Weather, yeah. They're all based on, they're both based on weather. And I think you have the same thing happening with diversity, that to the extent that race and ethnicity is a proxy for diverse thinking, it's incredibly useful and powerful. But we've got to the point where we're, we're actually censoring diverse thinking in the name of identity diversity. And so we're, we're destroying some of the benefits or most of the benefits of, of diversity itself. Because I really don't give a shit what your skin color is. I, I care about your, 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 your ideas. And, and yes, statistically, people of different skin colors will come up with different ideas, will have different moral frameworks, and, and you, you'll be less prone to error because you have that, that disconfirmation mechanism that, that mm-hmm. we talked about. Um, but what's happening now is we're creating a monolithic, the, the wokeism is becoming monolithic. And mm-hmm. I think in 20 years, we're going to find that, that it's the companies that, that have resisted this trend that will have yeah. the best performance. That's interesting. Um, it's, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. That's a good segue into um, the last thing I want to talk about, which is the truckers, because um, this is very class-based, right? I mean, this is like the diversity in, in, you know, the idea of, say, for example, making Harvard, you know, whatever, 12% Afro-American. I mean, it's really, it's, it's kind of like, it's not like um, looking at like, well, we want to make sure that plumbers, plumbers are really highly paid, you know, the 12% of them. It's, it's always these white collar professions and it never goes the other way. Right. So, so if the NBA are 75% Afro-American, which is pretty amazing and interesting in and of itself, it's like, that's just an achievement. Like it's never like, not that I'm proposing there should be some sort of affirmative action for white basketball players. And that's, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Coleman Hughes pointed this out in a really good article a couple of years ago about this, about, you know, the, 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 the top 100 uh, Rolling Stone uh, musicians, there was something like 37 of them were um, black. One was not an American. He was Bob Marley. You know, you got guys like James Brown. And then what's interesting is as you got closer to the top of that list, you got the sort of like the real heavyweights, like the James Browns and the Curtis Mayfields, and the, you know, um, which is which is to say that that where where the these so-called victim groups where they achieve is just sort of like it's just you know that's supposed to be taken as just well that's great and it is great but. It's, it, it sort of excludes the whole um, context of social background, what people are interested in, the, the context they grow up in, what they're doing when they're, when they're, you know, if we have a diverse society, like you point out, people who live in different cultures are going to be doing different things with their time as they're growing up and forming their minds, right? So that's going to lead to them doing different things. But I want to return to this class thing, just because this homogenization of the culture really seems to be of the managerial professional classes and not the working classes, right? Which brings us to the truckers. What do you think this trucker movement was, first of all, is it gone? Have they crushed it? Um, do you think that it is kind of like our Brexit? Cause that's how it appeared to me. It kind of, for years, we, we read these really annoying articles that Justin Trudeau, you know, Canada was avoiding the populist, uh, you know, uh, pitfalls of Trump and Boris Johnson and all this. And I remember reading those and, and then seeing Justin Trudeau show up for campaign events surrounded by guards from death threats in 2019. And I was thinking something funny's going on here. And I would see things on social media. I was like, I don't think that, I think there's a subset of Canadians that are pretty angry with this Trudeau guy and they're populist and they don't like this. And 
So is this our Brexit? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Are they, are they fanatics? Is the government crushing them effectively enough? They're just going to go away and the conservatives are going to turn back into, you know, showing a Justin Trudeau light in the next elections. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I do. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think I have an answer, but I, I have some thoughts. Um, you know, just because we were talking about communism earlier, you know, Marx expected the workers of the world to unite and as I mentioned on the other podcast, is what happens is that the bureaucrats of the world united. Right. <laughs> um, and, and I think you you do have this this again that that, that transnational or globalist mo- monolithic mindset that 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 uh, coming together of of values across like the the, the the managerial class has ended up fusing its values across nations. Whereas I think the lower classes have still maintained more individual national identities. Um, and so you have different manifestations of resistance to the managerial class, the bureaucratic class. But, and it's not just with Trump. I mean, you had it with the Gilets Jaunes in France, you have it with, you know, all over the place. And each one, what's interesting to me is that the, the, the people on one side, the, the managerial uh, response, the Justin Trudeau's, are very similar across nations, like Hillary Clinton, Justin Trudeau, mm-hmm. uh, like you know the, that, and 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 the 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 people who will swallow anything, you know, within <laughs> within each country, which who tend to be educated oddly, um, less critical. They there's way more similarity now between the manager the manager in you know the U.S., Canada, England, France, Germany. Spain, Italy, those people are very similar. Whereas if you look at the, the lower class, um, they're quite dissimilar still. They, they've maintained those- Diverse. Old, it's diverse. diverse. Yeah. yeah. They're diverse. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a bigger difference between the, I mean, you mentioned plumber. There's a bigger difference between plumber in Canada and, and, and the HR, uh, the head of HR in some big corporation than, uh, the in, in, intra-country difference is bigger than intra-class. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this is combined with, like it's a really complicated mix of, of things that are happening. I, I think part of it is that the whole focus on identity politics, um, I think a lot of it came out of Wall Street and, and the big corporations got, got freaked out by, by Occupy Wall Street. Um, even before that, you know, you had when when Clinton, the Clinton basically abandoned the working class in order to get corporate money, and so from I mean I'm talking Bill Clinton, not Hillary. Yeah. Um, from the time of Bill Clinton, the Democrats have abandoned the traditional working class uh, roots and started chasing corporate money in a different way, leaving that massive segment of the population unserviced politically, and. It took a long time, but the, the backlash just kept building up and building up. And there was no outlet. And, and so, you know, they ended up electing like clown like Trump because he, he was the first thing to come along that looked like an outlet for that massive pressure that, that had built up. He did um, listen to them. He, he did go and, and yeah. he actually listened. And he didn't try and be like them. 
you know, he wouldn't put on a cowboy hat or whatever. He would just go in his gaudy tie. You know, Victor yeah. Danson comments on this. He would go out to the farmer country and show up in the 120 degree heat, just wearing his stupid suits and you know, right. So he he was he was not trying to suck up to them, which they could see through. You know, yeah. Obama would show up and you know at a black church and be like saying y'all and everything and all this. And people people are smart. They can sense yeah. they're being sort of you know, talk to, you know, being schmoozed. So I don't know if that has any impact there or what it means, but. Yeah, there, I mean, when, when I was in law school, I read a lot of, um, you know, literature that would be considered very, not just, it wasn't woke yet, but it was it was the precursors of woke. Because I love, read a lot of read colonial studies, feminist studies. I read Derrida, I read all the postmodernists. And there was one, we had a guy, actually Spivak, who's a big feminist, come in at one point. And she had an article called uh, The Subaltern Cannot Speak. And the idea of a subaltern is somebody who doesn't have any voice. Uh, in, and, and that the really uh, marginalized groups are the ones that don't even have an identity yet. Um, so once, once you're organized enough, once you're recognized enough to have an identity attached to you, you know, indigenous, black, woman, trans, whatever it is, you already have a lot of cultural and social power. It's the really discriminated people. Imagine, think of trans people 20 years ago. There was no trans identity. They were seriously discriminated against before they had a, an articulated identity. By the time they had an articulated identity, they actually already had a lot of cultural power. Um, yeah. And I think there is an element of before Trump, um, and I, I think Trump was a terrible force in the world, but before Trump, the that kind of lower class and, and not just white but that that kind of poor poorer um you know blue collar person didn't have any representation from you know since jimmy carter until until you know yeah. trump yeah. finally came up and reagan i think reagan I, I think would have spoken to them but reagan yeah reagan was open to them but yeah. reagan used them i mean reagan reagan was was Pretty good at using them as opposed to actually helping them. I mean, he, but um, so, so I think a lot of the, the I'm just coming back to what I was saying earlier with the Occupy Wall Street. I, I think a lot of this, the the corporate buy-in into identity politics, was out of a realization that this is a safe way to channel some of this energy because it's very easy to become the Benetton ad. The, the corporate benefit in that. that that doesn't hit the bottom line but class brings with it you know questions about taxation and questions about uh wealth allocation that really would hit the corporate bottom lines and so i think the i think wall street silicon valley all the big corporations have been very happy to channel that that energy away from the class debate and into the you know, identity, identity, it sounds like you're speaking of that guy Vivek Ramos, uh, that, in, that, guy. yeah, well, okay, I have actually had oh, capitalism, you know, that's pretty, it sounds, I haven't read his book yet, but that sounds like his basic thesis was they, yeah, the 2008 thing happened, they were like, okay, yeah, okay, let's go pledge to, you know, be woke and all this stuff, and we'll be able to get social capital without having to do anything. Yeah, I, I haven't read the book, but I, I've seen him do some interviews, and I, I think that's probably where I got uh, some of this analysis. Uh, like it, 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 
it makes a lot of sense to me. Me too. You know, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, just to finalize on the truckers, do, do you think this uh, is going to have any impact? I mean, cause it, it really, one of the things I will say about it is just the sordid state of our prime ministers, uh, just speaking of returning it to freedom. Now that we're at the end, yeah. it's just appalling. The, uh, the just, I, we could go through a list of things that, that he's done. It's almost not worth enunciating to, you know, everything from, uh, you know, just calling them all racist and misogynist to ordering the Emergencies Act out to, you know, and then, and then you know, Tamara Lich not getting bail at first and then being given these really strict conditions. I mean, this is a person who she's accused of, of mischief. You know, this is not someone accused of axe murder. I mean, she might be crazy. She seems a little bit, a little odd as a person, but do you think it's going to be there's going to be any lasting impact from this thing, or do you think that basically the the powers that be have crushed it back down and that's just the end of it? Well, I, I think there's going to be lasting impact, but it's it's it's, it's a negative one. I think Good. you know yeah. as much as as much as you can blame Justin Trudeau, um, you know whether it's Russia or Canada, I do believe that people get the government they deserve, and we, if, if you look as much as I hate saying this. You know, the, the majority of Canadians support what Trudeau did. As, as terrifying as it is that, you know, just donate. I, I know people who had their bank accounts frozen. I mean, personally, you know people who had their bank accounts frozen wow. just for donating. No, not even for attending the protest, just for donating to it. Wow. Wow. That That's terrifying overreach. Like, this is political uh, engagement. You know, somebody is, is funding a, a protest. If you if you can't afford, if you can just freeze a bank account, then how are you going to articulate it? Even if you had free speech protections, you need, you know, you, you're paying for, for the bandwidth for this uh, and, yep. and the equipment. Yep. You're, yep. If you're printing flyers, you need money to pay for the flyers. If you're speaking in Hyde Park, you need a bullhorn. Like engagement, political engagement costs money. And if you yep. can freeze, like, I, I'm not suggesting that money is speech. I don't agree with Citizens United. But if you can completely freeze out somebody's bank account just because they have speech that you disagree with, you know, you, you can totally shut them down in, in today's society. And that's not a healthy democracy where, where you're not even allowed to have a debate about um, something that is so fundamental. Like, again, I, I'm vaccinated, but... The, the, you have to ask yourself, if the battlefront, if the battlefield is inside people's skin, like the, the battle here is about, about a mandatory medical procedure. It's, it's inside a person's own physical body. body. Yeah. And if, you have to think yourself, if, if that's where the battle is right now, that shows how much control there already is for everything up until the level of, of, you know, of the body. Because we're, we're fighting now for individual rights within the body it's like the last remnant of, of, of personal and you know choice is, is what happens to your own freaking body um and even though i think that in terms of scientific uh literacy if you're 50 years old and you're opposing the vaccine i think you have your numbers wrong yeah but it's not my place to tell you that I, I, can, I, I can tell you, but it's not my place to force you. Force you, yeah. Force exactly. you to take a medical procedure that I have determined is superior. Like that, that, that arrogance really pisses me off. And the fact that we're treating people who dare 
are not, not even, you know, people who are opposing them. You know, okay, the, the, the trucker protests, you can have other arguments that they're using big metal boxes, they're, they have disproportionate power, all this stuff. But that, those are not the only people who are having their rights infringed. Like just giving money to that convoy and you, with no due process, no civil liberties. I mean, the, this, the due process is as old as the Magna Carta, which yeah. you mentioned earlier. And we're willing to throw it away just because it's slightly inconvenient. Like just because of some honking, like the, the fact that Canadian society, I, I, think, I think that our governments were sitting there, the politicians had their jobs hanging open and how easy it has been to take away rights and how little opposition there is. Like how willing our society is to move to total control. And it's not, in a sense, I don't really blame the politicians. I blame the citizens like, I, I, and the media. Um, we've, we've present, you know, we've sterilized our, our consumption to such an extent and people are so lazy in terms of how they process information. And like the, the, the discourse is broken. Like our, our culture is really, this to me showed how, just how broken we are. And I think, I think this is going to have really negative effects going forward. I think governments have realized that th there are no stop, there are no stop signs. If they need more control, the, the population is, is so malleable, so easy to convince mm. to just give up. Because people here, one thing is interesting, going back to Eastern Europe, you see a lot of liberals who, you know, Gary Kasparov, you know, people who've come from, from the Eastern Bloc, who grew up under totalitarian systems, who are liberal in, in most kind of classical liberal ideas when it comes to, again, healthcare, education, you know, safety net, all that, who have, they're the only liberals who, not only, there's a significant demographic of liberals who came from totalitarian systems who are saying, what the hell are we doing? Like, this is nuts. Mm. Because they, they, recognize the, they recognize the direction um, that it's a scary, it's a scary, it's scary how cheaply we're giving up these rights. And, and, and you know, we don't know, those rights are protected across government. They, you know, those, those rights are embodied to, governments change, liberals come in, conservatives come in, different political parties come in. They have differing, differing values as to what they consider important, but our, you know, Charter of Rights or Bill of Rights in the US, they protect us from both of these extremes. Yeah. By giving away those protections, you could have somebody come in that totally has opposite values to you and you'll have no protection. You'll have no way of resisting because you've given away those rights for a very cheap short-term reason. Even if you agree with what they're doing, um, it, it's yeah. so short-sighted. It, it reminds me of the, uh, the American Civil Liberties Union. I saw him on Bill Maher last week, the guy who started it. And he, you know, they, they used to, Holocaust survivors would, were, were in that town of Skokie and, and they were defending these, these neo-Nazis to go and march there, right? Not because they liked the neo-Nazis, right? Because if you can shut them down, then maybe you can shut down you know, some left-wing thing, some right-wing thing, whatever, whatever it's going to be, right? So I was a dues main, I paid my dues, and I was a dues paying me, lawyer member of the ACLU. Okay. Back wow. when that's what the ACLU was, the only organization that's a lawyer that I was uh, happy to send money to, happy to volunteer time for at pro bono, because I really believed in the old ACLU. They've lost their mind now, as far as I'm concerned. 
actually just now that you've mentioned that i can't help but ask you i mean you've seen the recent direction where they put majid nawaz that famous british islamist they put him on a list i mean what is going on is this a generational thing is this do you have any clue what's happening i, I mean within the aclu I, I i i'm not paying attention i just assume it's you know some form of audience capture that that has happened but um you, that, that trend, like you, another example of that trend is that Yazidi woman who was raped and uh, tortured and Not she so. escaped. Yeah. And then she, she was deplatformed because uh, people thought that just her telling her, her life story could lead to Islamophobic thoughts among the audience. Um, that was in Toronto, I believe, that story. Yeah. It, it was, that, that's utterly absurd. And, and um, yeah, I, I'd like to end on a slightly more positive note, if I could, because this is you've you turned this uh, very, very depressing to me. But um, I, I do see since the truckers, I do see I mean, I don't know if this is because of the truckers or if it's coincident, but some governments uh, here in Quebec, for example, the vaccine passport has been rolled back and I believe the masks are on their way out. Um, I don't know if this is the government's worried. I mean, Francois Legault is coming up for re-election in a few months. It's coming up at the end of his term. I, you know, I like to think that there's. I like to think that there's some pushing back against this wokeism, uh, and then the, you know, not just the truckers, but I like to think maybe what you and I are doing, and maybe what John is doing, you know, is somehow pushing back against the monotheist, the mono. Uh, cultural thought. Yeah. Am I crazy? I hope not. I hope that I'm not too cockeyed optimist. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I I went to a restaurant last night and I still got I had my vaccine passport checked and 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 you know it makes no sense at this point. It it made sense with you know alpha and beta. It stopped making. It was eighty percent less sense with delta and it's zero sense with omicron. Omicron. But we're not adapting to to the scientific scenario. Um, like, and again, I, I'm not an absolutist. If we were talking with Ebola and it had a 50% IFR and, and the vaccine stopped transmission, then it was absolutely mandated. Like, again, I, I believe in, in, in kind of proportional responses, but rational ones. And with Omicron, the vaccine still helps you protect from, from a more serious illness, but Omicron is basically the flu. And the vaccine, has, the vaccine has no impact on transmission. So as soon as you have a scenario where the vaccine has no impact on transmission, how do you justify segregating society into basically two separate water fountains for the, the, the vaxxed and the unvaxxed? And that's what we're doing. When, when, when my unvaccinated friends can't go to a restaurant with me, we've created an, an, an apartheid type system. It's, it's over an issue of personal choice as opposed to core identity. So I, I, I understand that distinction, but we're still creating a two-tier system with mm -hmm no scientific rationale behind it anymore again there was one but that's a zombie argument that then that that zombie argument i don't understand how that zombie argument has survived in an era of omicron where vaccines have no impact on transmission they're a personal way to lower your own risk Same i think that. it's the, i think it's that tribal thing you were talking about before some yeah. people, it was just that we were divided into these two tribes i was never in on the anti-vax side i'm vaccinated as well i you know, but um, I think that people just got onto one side and they, they remained on that side. I think that's what happened. But I think that the governments are taking down, I mean, we're supposed to, in, B, in BC, we're supposed to get rid of the vaccine passport in April. Um, I don't think it's the government's somehow 
waking up or anything like that. I, I think it's just, it's become so absurd scientifically that, you know, there's still some scientific minds in there that are like, okay, it's no longer useful. So why are we maintaining it? Um, but it, it doesn't feel to me, I mean, the fact that, that we're still doing this into April when Omicron has been here since December, it, it makes no sense to me. So you don't, don't think the truckers? You don't think the truckers had any impact just on pushing that ball forward? And you don't, you know. I actually think they they uh, push society towards net negative, because I think they they allow the first ever use of the War Measures Act or the Emergencies Act. Now, um, they the I think people underestimate the power of backlash. The yeah. the government's the government's insane mishandling and, and, and lies, like straight out lies. The idea that, you know, for the first four months they kept saying masks don't work unless you have a PhD in mask wearing. Um, like they knew they were lying. They were doing it because there was a shortage of supplies. And instead of telling us that, they, they, they lied. And they lied over and over again. And they just assumed that public trust was owed to them. They, they forgot that public trust is like the most precious commodity in, uh, most precious asset in, in a pandemic. Um, and so they created a backlash with, again, just stupid, stupid not to think that there would be a backlash. And I think the truckers did the same for the other side. I think right. that the, right. you know, yeah. I, I know enough people who support the truckers who are convinced that, you know, at least they were fighting. And then and emotionally, I have a great deal of gratitude for the fact that, look, there are still people in Canada willing to fight. And there were a lot of vaccinated people among the truckers who were doing yeah. it purely on principle. And those are the people I, I kind of like emotionally the most. People who are willing to uh, not just fight for them, themselves, but fight for the principle of like, this is just wrong. Um, yeah. But I think overall, just based on the polling, like, you know, 75% of Canadians thought the truckers were, were terrible and that they created a justification for, um, for even more repression and restraints. Um, that seems like I think a media effect, problem. Yeah, that seems like yeah. a media problem, I think, because the, the, the mainstream yeah. presentation, but sorry, that was just a parenthesis. No, no, and, and, and it was yeah. clearly like, the, when I see how many of my friends who are constantly posting about, you know, fact-checking fake news were posting about the, the swastika flag. Look, we have you know, Nazis supporting the truckers when the, the, the thing clearly said Trudeau equals Nazi flag, the swastika. Trudeau equals, they were calling Trudeau a Nazi, and yet I had friends all over Facebook saying, look, look at the kind of people that, that, that these are. And when I would point out that this is just a, a misleading angle of the photo, because if you actually look at the full uh, banner, it was Trudeau equals swastika. Um, they were calling Trudeau a Nazi. They just wouldn't absorb that information. Like it, it, it was amazing how resistant, uh, because again, I think it's a bit tribal. We've, we've attached so much identity in our, of who we are to our political tribe yeah. that we, we can't post this information anymore. Also, there's an interesting thing there where there's almost like a psychological bullying that the, that the, the wokeists have done for a very long time to the point where like, I, I, you know, as a white male for many years ago, I learned just to kind of shut up in many instances. That was sort of the, and even in this case with the, with this flag, as soon as I saw that, I was like, Oh my God. Cause I, I was thinking, I don't know if I should be supporting these guys. Maybe some of the, how many of them are Nazis? And I saw that flag and I was like, oh no, there must be, you know. And I and I only learned from you, your podcast with John. That was where I learned 
that it turned out, and then I went and looked it up and it turned out it was true that it was actually a different, that the, and the mainstream media really dropped the ball there. That's the kind of thing that a good reporter would point out. It would be sort of known if it were being reported properly. We've got this, you know, this strange problem where, where our state media is obviously directly funded by the government. And then there, there was a bailout package some years ago of $600 million for legacy media to quote unquote, uh, fight fake news. Right. Which if you just stop and think about that for a second, it's like the government wants to stop. You know, it's like they wouldn't have any possible self-interest. It's like, you know, this idea that they wouldn't have a self-interest there is why people wouldn't imagine that, you know, it's very. They don't see to bring it back to to Russia. You know, Putin is calling any anyone who calls his invasion of Ukraine a war or an invasion is sentenced to 15 years in jail for spreading fake news. He's wow. using the exact same language. And wow. people just, I don't understand how people can't see the doors they're opening when, when you allow this kind of mindset. The, the ability to dissent and, and argue back has always you know, helped the, the, the weak. It's right. always helped minorities. The people who are in power don't need those protections. And you have all these, again, liberals who, who who think they're supporting the 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 thing they're punching up they're not punching up they're punching down and what they're doing is they're taking away the ability of future disenfranchised groups to argue to fight back to present a, a you know contradicting theory from from those who do have power um and they, they're completely unaware that, that that's what they're doing and then it, it's Kind of even depressing. current, even current groups. I mean, the, the, yeah. if, in as much as, I mean, how do we group people, you know, working class people uh, who are happen to be white males, uh, they're being punched down on. And even working class non-whites who don't feel on side are sort of being pushed out from that as well. So I, you know, I, I think this is yeah. terrible from a class perspective. I think it's, you know, class is a much better metric of if you're trying to help people, if you're looking yeah. at ways of, you know, you um, helping a, a, a rich black person, you know, giving them an, you know, some sort of, like, how is that, you know? Yeah, my, my, my colleagues from Harvard who happen to be black, they don't need any extra help yeah. any more than the white <laughs> colleagues from Harvard need any extra help. It's, you know, it, it's hilarious. It, and this whole idea of privilege is so destructive. Like, you know, before my wife died, there was, some context when somebody you know told her but she had white privilege and you know she had stage four cancer and she was dying and she's being told fuck your privilege it's totally that's a scream back fuck you yeah exactly Um, fuck yourself she's dying you should shut the fuck up you don't know anything what you're talking about yeah but people get so obsessed and happy and again if you look at historically almost all pogroms and massive you know massacres and uh, have have been grounded in la- the language of privilege. When the, the Hutus murdered the Tutsis, or, you know, it was because the Tutsis controlled their 25% of the population and they controlled all the economic, they, they, they had the privilege. So then the Hutus rose up and it was the privilege argument that justified massacring a million people with machetes. If you look at even the Nazis when they, you know, or the Bolsheviks, it was the bourgeois. The bourgeois had privilege, so let's kill all the bourgeois. Even the Nazis, they didn't, Started off by talking about how Jews were were inferior. That's where they ended up. But where they started was talking about look, they control the banking system. They they have all the money. They have all the gold. Um, it all started with resentment. And we're creating, we're, we're justifying group based collective guilt and group based resentment 
as a, as a so, within the social discourse. And that, that to me, again, it, it's, it's methodologically so destructive. I'm a big believer, maybe that's from, from law school, that, you know, I'll give you all the substantive rights you want. If I can, if I control the procedural rights, I'll always win. And same thing with, with debate. It doesn't really matter to me what your substantive endpoint is. It, it's, it's how you get there. Method yeah. is way more meaningful and, and, and deeper in terms of uh, shaping society and shaping outcomes than the specific superficial values. And if your method is the method of a bully, you're going to end up in a fucked up system. Whether you're arguing for, you know, this person's right or that person's right, that's all, those are, that's all superficial. It's how you're structuring those how arguments, you're doing it. Yeah. how you're doing it, um, that, well, that I, will really shape society. I would say that, that um, that's a good way to end, that we do still have a structure of proceduralism in this country. We're supposed to have one. And there are people like me and you. Maybe maybe if if people like me and you continue to have these kinds of conversations, and if I, you know, it's sort of like this absurd idea I had that if I look in the eyes of a couple of hundred or a couple thousand kids over the course of my career and tell them they're, they're as Canadian as me, maybe that's going to have some kind of an effect, but maybe it will, right? So I'm sure it will. I'm sure it does help. Yeah. And so maybe, maybe this emphasis that, yes, we have these procedures. People are mounting legal challenges for Tamara Lich, and there is a, some sort of pushback here to try and um, and there are, there are constitutional challenges um, against the um, some of these mandate things. Brian Peckford mount, has mounted one you're probably aware of that um, about the travel ban. So there there is our this proceduralism is something that we can kind of hold on to as a um, just before you. Uh, I'd like you to plug your book uh, shamelessly at the very end. Uh, but is there anything else you'd just like to add about that uh, before you? Just that I'm Eastern European, so I have to be pessimistic. But I hope you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's I, I I tend to my, my wife. This is a difference where, um, uh, like I, I tend to, I mean I I might seem like a happy person or something, but I actually have kind of a dark view. I have a pessimistic view, and this causes a lot of friction because I always plan for the worst possible outcome. Because then I figure whatever happens, I'm going to be like, Oh, it's great. I, you know, it's kind yeah, of low expectations are the best. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so my wife and I, she, she's very much, I think Latin, especially Dominicans are always like, Oh, well, things are great. You know, happy Monday. They're always like in this sort of positive, you know, mood. So that's causes interesting uh, arguments, but um, what this book? It's it looks so interesting to me. Is, is it is it based on your life? Maybe you could describe it a bit and just plug it and talk about it uh, before we close. Well, that that's that's my my last book, The Ugly. Um, it, it actually goes into some of the similar areas we, we talked about. It, it's it's about a three hundred pound mountain man from Siberia who whose land is stolen by an American lawyer, and uh, he comes from a tribe where they, they select a chief by throwing boulders at each other and. And you, you, don't, you don't duck, you don't step out of the way, you just have to catch the boulder. And if you catch it, then you get to, your turn to throw. And uh, when, when this American lawyer steals their land, they realize they have to learn how to throw words instead of throwing boulders. And so the son of the chief is sent off to learn how to throw words. And he, he's told that the place to learn how to throw words is Harvard Law School. So you have this, this mountain. He's actually, he's very intelligent, but completely fish out of the water kind of. And so his, is, it, uh, is it kind of a dark comedy? I have a couple of questions. It sounds comedic. I'm, I'm just wondering, is, is that 
based on any true tribe that exists, or did you just invent that as a dramatic device? I, I well, there was a true historical during World War One, the, the Czech and Slovak Legion, um, which initially was fighting for Austria-Hungary, it, it broke through Russian lines, and instead of turning back, it just kept marching. And they, they, you know, good, good stubborn Slavs, they just kept going forward. Um, and they ended up taking over Siberia for a number of years um, during the Russian Civil War. So during the, the Bolshevik Revolution, when it was the whites versus the reds, um, a, a chunk of Siberia was controlled by, by the, the Czech and Slovak Legion. Now, historically, what happened was they actually walked all the way to Vladivostok. Um, and then they took, took a boat out from Vladivostok around back to Europe. And exactly. the premise in the book is that a number of these Slovaks got, you know, said big men don't walk so much, so they just stayed where they were, and yeah. uh, right. and they created their own. It was a way of, of creating a fake Slovak tribe um, yeah. in Siberia to make them kind of a bit more mythical. Um, and the the book is it is dark, it is dark comedy. It's it's written from kind of Central European literary history, where like Kafka, Musil, Harabal. Even though I wrote in English, it it it's not a, a, a typical. Uh, Could I ask you something about that, yeah. just quickly? Because as you were talking, um, when I lived in Slovakia, all my friends who had origins there were telling me you have to read this, Yaroslav Hasek. So I read the Good Soldier Schweik. Have you ever read yeah. that? That's yeah. one of the most incredible books I have ever read in my entire life. And he was actually, as you were speaking, I think Hasek was in that regiment that you're talking about i read i became obsessed with him and i learned about it oh. and he went he lived he had a wife in russia i remember going to the hashik museum in prague when i went to prague or was in a bookstore they had a whole bunch of things about him and stuff um, that's an untranslatable book so I'm, I'm impressed that the english language version had such a big I, impact I, on you because there's so many jokes that require you to speak not just czech but czech and german in order to make sense and then I can't, I can't imagine how anybody could translate that book. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do remember when, when I did my research how, how I learned about how um, uh, Prague was very reminiscent of Montreal in the sense of having this, you know, this large German population. And it was sort of, Hasek just sort of assumes everybody speaks German. This is the same way that any yeah. phone Montrealer would just, if they were writing a book in French, they would just put things in English and they wouldn't bother translating them because, you know, well, yeah. you know, it's kind of like, it's sort of an assumption. That, and so I, I, I just, I, I, I really, I'm going to read your book. I'm looking forward to it. And I wonder if in future, maybe we could talk about that or Hashek or something because uh, that, that yeah. European thing is really interesting to me. <laughs> I'd mean, love to. I, I have okay. another book coming out, but it's not until uh, April, 2024. Um, like the, the book contract is signed, but it's, the, it's still in the process. But I'd be happy to talk about the ugly at any time. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because it, it sounds like it. Um, the, the story of the, you know it, it just it reminded me of the of the uh, the, the good soldier Schweik in a weird way because it's sort of like a guy going off into the world and kind of getting yeah. in these strange comedic situations. I mean, Schweik, I don't know if the if this guy pretends to be an idiot because I, I think that, you know, Schweik is pretending to be a moron all the time. And he, I don't know if that's yeah. MO. Muzhdok is actually very intelligent, but he comes across as a moron because he comes from such a different starting point that a lot of people assume he's a moron when he's not. You, do you think that was fake? Do you, do you think that just because of his starting point, do you think he was feigning that idiocy? Just for, you know. 
<laughs> I've never figured out if he really was an idiot or if he. I think I think Schwake actually was an idiot, but in the same. Have you ever seen the movie uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz by Fassbinder? Uh, no, but I like that director. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean Berlin Alexanderplatz to me is one of the top five movies ever made. Um, and then the the main character Bieberkopf is kind of like also you you can't figure out if he's actually a moron or not because he's just kind of stumbling. And he manages to he does every appalling horrible thing you could have a character do, and he's still likable. Like uh, I mean, everything from you know murder, rape, killing his girlfriend, joining the Nazi uh, party. He does absolutely every horrible thing you can imagine a human being doing, and somehow the director still makes him sympathetic. Um, amazing. And, and coming back to the, you know, the the political side, like I like characters that are not cardboard cutouts. I like people who are complex, who, who, you know, they're not all good or all bad. They're this complex mix like we all are. Yeah. Um, and, and struggling, and he, right? He I mean, actually, the, most, most people are struggling in some way, right? Yeah. That's a, between those two things, maybe. Is that part of it as well? Well, the, uh, there I was kind of going away from, from my own book. The uh, does a figure is kind of in part, it's kind of like a fool figure, and and Hasek is kind of a fool figure. Bibrakov, it, it, it's a character that I find interesting because, or like Dostoevsky's idiot. You know, it, these are characters that allow you to really look at society from the outside. Um, and there's another biographical element that I've I've changed countries so many times, uh, and then like even just chronologically, English was my fifth language. Um, and when you're constantly coming to new cultures and new environments, you end up getting this perspective that is, is really hard to get if you're all in that environment. And having a full character allows a level of social critique that's kind of unique. Um, so that's why I think these, these full characters become really useful. They're useful. Tropes. They're useful, right? Yeah, they're, for they're very writers. Useful. Yeah. yeah, they're useful. They're useful when, 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 when your point is, you know, maybe not your point, but when, when a, one dimension of your book is, is social critique, um, that's a very useful character for which to do it. And The Ugly definitely has an element. I mean, it, it's, it's meant to be first and foremost a fun story. And it actually made it um, in, in dark humor. It made it up to number two in between Catch-22 and a Kurt Vonnegut book. So it was briefly uh, in between, oh. you know, Catch-22 and Kurt Vonnegut. I, I was very proud that's, of that. That's um, amazing because th those two works are, I mean, that's some that's some good company to be keeping. <laughs> so so definitely there's, there's I mean, the it is meant to be dark humor, but it's also meant to be um, like dark humor that includes or incorporates social critique. It's a critique of the law as, as a system of thought. It's an examination of, of different ways of processing information, which is, you know, part of what we talked about, like how, how different people and different systems just, you know, if you ask the question, what is thinking? There's not one answer. There, there are multiple answers to the question of what is thinking. And on a philosophical level, the ugly does examine, you know, what is thinking and looks at different ways of thinking, but tries to subsume that within a story that's meant to be funny and dark and entertaining make it accessible it sounds really really cool I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it so it's, it's a bit misleading because it, it, it starts off as a really easy accessible light book and then like two-thirds of the way it's it a little heavy which is why john likes it because he's a philosophy professor um 
but okay. that's why it, it, it won a bunch of awards, but it, it didn't sell as no. well as it could. The next one will sell. All right. Well, I tell you what, I, I'm going to buy it, and I'm happy that at least we, we had a we had something sort of positive to end on, which is good. So I, I want to thank you again uh, for for agreeing to um, uh, to do this. It's just it's been oh, this is fun, and, and and thank you for bringing up the ugly. That was really kind. Definitely. All right, I'll catch you on the flip side. I'm just going to stop the book. So, yeah. Thank you for listening to today's guest on the Mega Blast Podcast. I've been your host, Jason McDonald. This podcast is brought to you by Arts and Opinion, an online journal, which is also available in the permanent archives of Canada. Visit us online at artsandopinion.com.